the ultimate idea is that you only use the dose that you need to accomplish the purpose of your intention. And you can build up experience to larger journeys without having to think that that's the purpose to begin with. And so I think you first come up with an intention that's incredibly personal and positive, and then you see whether or not that kind of plant medicine that you're thinking about doing is capable of delivering on that experience. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they think that any kind of plant medicine can be purposeful to what they're trying to achieve. And in reality, there's a vast difference between psilocybin mushrooms or cannabis or ayahuasca or San Pedro mescaline, et cetera. And so you want to know that the kind of plant medicine you're working with is appropriate to the purpose of your intention. And you're really there to fulfill your intention with the help of that medicine, which is why I like the term medicine. You treat it as a medicine. You don't treat it as an experience or a recreational drug. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Hamilton Souther, the CEO, Master Shaman, and Chairman Founder of Blue Morpho, and the co-founder of One Energy Global and Source Independent Entertainment. Hamilton is a visionary leader, speaker, author, and renowned Master Shaman. He is an international leader for Amazonian sustainability and conservation. When Paul met with Hamilton to plan this podcast, they both concluded from their extensive experiences helping people who have been injured by unskilled or inappropriate use of plant medicines that creating a user's guide to plant medicines would be the best offer they could give anyone interested in plant medicines, using them, wanting to do their own ceremonies, and for those conducting plant medicine ceremonies. Paul and Hamilton did a lot of work to prepare this special podcast, and though it is long, it covers all the essential aspects of plant medicine use everyone should understand for their own safety. Paul and Hamilton share many key tips for how to use plant medicine spiritually to enhance one's personal and spiritual growth, to be respectful of the plant medicine teachers, and to help make the world a better place for all living beings. You will learn about different plant medicines, how to know if you are ready for a plant medicine ceremony, what steps to take in creating or participating in a plant medicine ceremony, how to manage yourself in a ceremony, the importance of how to do post-ceremony integration work, how long you should wait between ceremonies, where you can go for professional, skillful plant medicine experiences and training to conduct plant medicine ceremonies or to become a qualified shaman and much more. We hope you enjoyed this special episode and encourage all of you to share it with anyone you feel needs more awareness on the safe, effective use of plant medicines. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. And now over to Paul and Hamilton talking about plant medicine essentials. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, I have a very special guest. Hamilton Souther, who is somebody that was brought to my attention by my buddy Kyle Kingsbury. And Hamilton's name popped up actually several times. And that's how I know I probably should look into someone when multiple people start saying, hey, you really ought to have this guy on your podcast. So I met with Hamilton and we had some great dialogue conversations wrapped to get this podcast ready. And uh, the title of the podcast today is Plant Medicine Essentials. Hamilton and I both have a lot of experience with plant medicines, and you'll learn a lot more about Hamilton in a second. But in our dialogue, I think, I don't know, Hamilton, if it was you that came up with the idea or me or how it happened, but we sort of came to the conclusion what we ought to really do together is put together a 
a coherent outline for anyone out there to learn how to engage plant medicine safely and effectively, whether it's by themselves or in a group ceremony, because of all the problems you and I have both seen. So Hamilton, welcome to Living 4D. Oh, thanks so much, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, really excited to share the information we have to go over on this podcast. I also agree it's really important to cover these basics of plant medicine. So really excited. Thank you. You know, I know a lot of people do know you out there, in, especially in podcast land, because your name kept coming up over and over again. And I know there's a number of podcasts with you out there. But I'd love it if you can give everybody a summary of your background, your experience with plant medicines, and what led you to creating your own center where people can come get professional help to engage plant medicines safely and effectively. Because I think um, there's a shortage of, of places to go in the world where people can get reliable help. Um, and also, as you know, a lot of the problem is there's a language barrier Many people go to Peru or to uh, various jungle regions of the world, Brazil, all over the place, as you know. And, and then there's, they don't often have the ability to communicate to someone that speaks English. But to have someone like you, who's in a more of a native setting, who has a lot of training and work with natives in their actual shamanic practices and uses of the plant medicines, but who can communicate clearly to people that have English as a primary language, I think is a real help. So please uh, share whatever you'd like to share so we have a better sense of who Hamilton is and his experience with plant medicines. And I'd also like to know what encouraged you to do all the work to become a shaman, because you know if you do that the way most shaman are trained, legitimately trained, it's quite a journey. Oh, for sure. The uh, journey of apprenticeship and training was uh, epic in its own right, and uh, it much harder than I ever thought uh, even possible, even though I had heard a little bit about it before I got involved. Um, my background is that I grew up in the United States, and I uh, went to university at the University of Colorado. I studied anthropology, and after I graduated, I had a spontaneous awakening, and as part of that awakening and in the sort of extended experience of consciousness that I had, um, it was very clear that I was going to go to Peru and I was going to study mystic arts. And Neat. I didn't have any background in that. I didn't have any uh, originating story to accompany it. I was fundamentally a scientist in the way that I understood and the way that I used logic and reason. And um, all of a sudden I had these experiences in my early 20s that were uh, akin to the awakening to shamanic apprenticeship. And I was presented some synchronicities and people gave me some books that had heard about what I was going through. And um, they were all uh, firsthand accounts of initiation into shamanic apprenticeships. And it was exactly what was happening to me from the dream experiences to the lucid dreaming, to the visionary experiences, to um, the premonitions and things like that, that I was going through. And so I went to the Amazon to find out ultimately if what was happening to me was delusion or fact. And um, I ex really asked for very like key ways to corroborate the information, like set periods of time that things should happen in, et cetera. And so I was literally told in vision that if I went to Peru in 90 days, I would find my apprenticeship. I would stay in Peru and I would start learning there and training. And so I went to see if it was true. And uh, it actually turned out to be true, funny enough. And uh, I, I couldn't believe it, really. I mean, I just, I, I 
kind of had to transcend doubt and fear in my own right at that time. I was in my early 20s. There wasn't really a trodden path to follow to uh, go look at look into this. I was in a very remote part of the forest uh, in my first ayahuasca ceremony and had visions that I had found my apprenticeship and that I needed to stay there. And the first um, sort of trial and test of the apprenticeship was just learn how to live in the forest and be accepted by the people to live there. And I, like I said, I was in a very remote part of the forest. I was uh, 24 hours overland travel from the city of Iquitos. I was on a small tributary and upriver from me where I lived, there were no permanent inhabitants. And so I was literally the last person on the river that was as far as civilization had reached. And I was about 40 minutes past a native tribe who I uh, actually ended up becoming really good friends with. They supported me and protected me out there through my apprenticeship. I became uh, the healer of their tribe for a period of time through the early and late stages of apprenticeship. And all of that ultimately led to Blue Morpho, um, our center for plant medicines here in the Amazon, and our academy to teach people about the appropriate and safe uses, professional uses of plant medicine and the practices that accompany them really now for this uh, growing expansion of interest in plant medicines and psychedelics. And so I, I uh, trained formally in the, in the jungle for four and a half years. And then we moved to a location closer to the city because the interest in our work was growing and the group sizes started to grow and we needed to be in a place that was just closer to emergency medical attention if ever necessary and something easier logistically for our guests to ultimately travel to and come to. And so um, my background, you know, brought me deep into plant medicines in my early 20s. Since then, I've had a, a really extensive amount of uh, practice and experience. I've held over 1,500 professional ayahuasca ceremonies and another 1,500 um, professional plant medicine ceremonies of various types of plant medicines. I developed a system of uh, shamanism around cannabis and psilocybin based out of the Amazonian teachings, as well as uh, San Pedro Huachuma. And so um, in the Amazon, I studied five disciplines of shamanism. I studied ayahuasca, uh, the trees, they call them palos, the uh, sanangos, uh, mapacho, and toe. And uh, then got the opportunity to practice with all different kinds of visionary plants outside of our specific lineage. And I got to work with over 10,000 people over the years from all over the world. And it's given a tremendous breadth of experience and knowing what people go through, the cultural differences, the uh, differences in the psyche, and really using plant medicines for um, acute intervention, healing, and uh, greater success in people's lives. That's fantastic. Well, Hamilton, that's a hell of a lot of experience. Now, those plant medicines that you'd worked with, you gave the native names. C can you translate those different medicines into English that you've worked with? Yeah, ayahuasca, um, you know, that's Banisteriopsis capi with Psychotra vidris, and then a number of different admixtures that are typically given to it. In our lineage, we work with anywhere from 10 to 20 plants that go into the ayahuasca that we make. And then uh, San Pedro, uh, Wachuma, is a kind of cactus, psilocybin mushrooms of various kinds. I was just going to say the San Pedro, the active ingredient is mescaline. Correct. Correct. Mescaline based. Which is lovely. Um, the, I, li I like it straight up myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it has a, an incredible way of grounding and teaching about the earth and the body and, and incredible healing that can come and transformation in terms of 
the deep connection to nature and our own nature. And I agree. I think it's an incredible medicine. And then the yeah. trees, uh, there's anywhere from, depending on the lineage between 20 and 40 different kinds of trees that are said to be medicinal trees or doctor trees of the forest. And um, they aren't psychoactive in their own right. They're done in dieta, which is a kind of deep purification and a long-term study and meditation with the tree. And uh, they're in different lineages added to ayahuasca as admixtures to give greater spiritual support and energetic support to the ayahuasca. Um, so it can add, in essence, make it a more powerful experience and just add the, the presence of these, the trees. And then uh, sanangos are also a kind of dwarf tree, typically used in the roots. Uh, they're visionary. You do dieta with them. And there's a number of different kind of healing techniques that are done. The local names for them are uchuk sanango, which means like spicy sanango, chirik sanango, which is the shaking or trembling sanango, achuni sanango, which is a kind of a small animal, lobo sanango, which means wolf, wolf sanango. And um, they're used also in a variety of different healing uh, methods. Toe is uh, angel trumpet vine, similar to datura and something that's considered uh, incredibly dangerous and really not for the novice in any kind of way and really cannot be recommended typically to be It's a uh, poison utilized. if I remember right. Correct, correct. Uh, it just happens that in the Amazon, um, certain kinds of healers and mystics utilize plants that are in other terms known as poisonous as part of their practices and they've learned ways to use them that are safe enough, I would say, but um, you know, very expert oriented and potentially extremely dangerous. But I was trained in those arts and so- I'm glad I survived them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it would make this podcast hard to do without you. Um, and just for the listeners, dieta is the equivalent of what we would call a diet. So classically, shaman will do a dieta. So you might do tobacco uh, in various forms for a given period of time and eat practically nothing else or whatever the plant is that they're training you on so that the spirit infuses you adequately enough that you develop a relationship with that spirit. So you know how to work with it. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that for people that don't know what that word means. What's your mission? Uh, what do you, what would you describe as your mission, vision and values to support evolution of consciousness and support humanity and in, in evolving consciously with your center there? I think the core mission is the evolution of consciousness itself uh, for ultimately the general improvement and expansion of consciousness based around core values of love and support for humanity and ultimately a, a bond with nature so that we live in a symbiosis and a, a real understanding of being stewards of nature and supporting the future generations, an idea of an incredibly expanded future in our thought, not just one generation or two, but five, a hundred, a thousand, fifty thousand, a million generations into the future. I would like to think that when people look back on the ancient history of humanity, thinking literally of us right now, you know, a million or two million years from now, they would think that there were a group of people that uh, really cared about earth and really cared about people and understood that it was through the evolution of consciousness that we would ultimately impact and solve some of our greater problems and that we can use it for healing and ultimate success and having a deeper understanding of our role within the cosmos um, and transcending the philosophies of separation to understand the 
true unity that we truly experience and are part of. Yeah, that's great. Now, just since we're early in the podcast and occasionally people won't stick it out, but probably need this information, I would like it if you could describe what, if I wanted to come to Blue Morpho in Peru, what are the sort of offerings or packages you have? What What's the cost? So, so people know as we go through our podcast today, if all of a sudden they decide, wow, I got to go see Hamilton in Peru, I should do this or I should do that. What, what is the options you have available to the people and, and what's the cost generally to, to do that work at your center and the different types of ceremonies you do? Yeah, Blue Morpho is uh, fundamentally three different kinds of offerings. And so the first is ayahuasca retreats. And an ayahuasca retreat is typically six days or uh, 12 days. And so we have ones that run back to back and we also have individual ones. And you either come for four ayahuasca ceremonies or eight ayahuasca ceremonies. And the cost for those is uh, around $2,500 to $2,700 for the one week and double that for the back to back weeks. And people come from all over the world to experience ayahuasca. And we use it really for maximum success. And that can include tremendous healing. But the idea is that we come for expansion of consciousness, a tremendous amount of learning, experiential learning through the ceremonies themselves, lectures during the day to uh, discuss what we're going to do in the next ceremonies and how we really set intention for those ceremonies individually and collectively. There's a tremendous amount of guidance and a tremendous amount of teaching that takes place. We really demystify the experience so that we can open up the true mystery of the cosmos and the mystical nature of these plants and what they can teach us. Uh, we also offer a dieta center. Uh, it's a lodge uh, about an hour outside of the city. It's a lodge I built myself. And there we offer uh, long-term plant medicine dietas and ceremonies. So people can come and experience the trees. They can do the fasts. They can experience the uh, long-term really deep healing that comes from both the uh, visionary plants and also the just the non-psychoactive ones, the ones that are part of the plant medicine practices of the forest. The forest has hundreds of medicinal plants. And so here you can come and experience dieta. You can learn about the plants in the forest. It's a very deep meditative practice. And um, the cost for that depends on your length of stay, but it's anywhere from about $1,000 a week to uh, you know longer depending or more depending on the, the length of time. But you can come for the length of time that you would like. You could stay for a week or a month or two months, et cetera, as, uh, as you need. And um, the, the third is the academy. The Blue Morpho Academy is an offering of um, online programs and in-person trainings to certify sitters, coaches, facilitators, and master facilitators in the plant medicine arts. And um, the online courses can be done at your own pace. They go anywhere from three months to two years of education. And the in-person trainings will either take place on retreats or uh, at the Dieta Center. And you could come for a week at a time or, you know, over a month if you can fit it into your schedule and uh, really go on the, the path of medicine and learning and ultimately having a certified role within the plant medicine community and potentially a career. Yeah, that's great. I didn't realize from our previous conversations that you had the educational component to it. I think that's quite important because there's you know, the the nice thing is that shamanism is in a revival state, but as you know, the challenge of that is that you get 
all sorts of stuff that, you know, may or may not be very well grounded in real shamanic practices. And uh, so there's just not a lot of places to go. My my wife, Angie, did uh, Michael Harner's advanced shaman. First, she did all of, his, all of his basic shamanism, but then she did his three-year advanced training program, which was quite comprehensive. Um, but a lot of people, you know, they're not going to go through a three-year program, but they could. It sounds to me like they could go. What What program would you say or what length of program would you say would be what you would consider to be the minimum before someone could be qualified enough to lead plant medicine ceremonies effectively? I think it depends on the role. The The role of the sitter is really a hands-off role and it's a westernized role. So you can't really, uh -huh. uh, you can't equate it with that of a practicing shaman or a true facilitator of the ceremonies. So I think a sitter role can be learned within three to six months. You could have the, the skills and safety plans and, you know, understanding what to do in the case of an emergency, but it really is a, a hands-off role. You know, it's a, it, ergo the name sitter, you're there to observe and provide some advice and understandings. I think to truly facilitate plant medicine ceremonies where you yourself are also participating in the medicine and are, um, you know, sharing the responsibility of that ceremony and really taking responsibility. I think at a minimum takes two years, maybe three, depending yeah. on the kinds of plant medicine you're working with. Some are easier to work with and some are just wily and, and much harder. And I think for the much harder ones, you can't put a time limit on it. Traditionally, you just start learning, you go through a kind of set of initiations and tests. And if you pass those tests, then you just continue practicing and, and learning and evolving in the, in the practices, in the ceremonies with the plants and the purifications until you have a, a mastery of them. And it's recognizable. It's recognizable in your being, in your spirit, in your speech, in the way that you think, the way you conduct yourself. And at that point, you graduate and you're uh, given the, the opportunity to hold the ceremonies on your own. Yeah, the reason I asked for that is because one of the things, and I know you know this for sure, one of the things I see over and over again is you see people go do maybe two, three, five medicine ceremonies. And the next thing you know, they've got you know, a whole bunch of mushrooms or ayahuasca that they bought or whatever. And then they're running their own ceremonies and charging people. But I've seen a lot of people get hurt in those situations because they don't have the depth of understanding. And I think it's not just the understanding of the plant medicines. It's the understanding of human beings and the psyche mm. and what happens when the unconscious is able to percolate up into consciousness and traumas surface. And, you know, so I think there's a, a real misunderstanding that just because you've navigated a few journeys that you can now take someone else on a journey, but you know, you have no idea what's going to happen when you open Pandora's box. And I think that's where the real skill is not, not only there, but you know, dosing, knowing who should and shouldn't do it. But that, these are a lot of the things we're going to talk about today. I think that's what's so important about what, what we're going to share through the podcast today is, is you know, there's a lot of people people that are just not going to get the training and not going to wait. They're too impatient. They're too, you know, instant gratification. So I think our goal today was to, you know, give people the things that they need to definitely be aware of and hopefully 
using what we share would, would, would take them to a completely different level of awareness. Um, that'll never replace the practice, but you'll reduce a lot of the risks of injury to yourself and to others. And also, you know, abusing the medicines themselves, which is a something that, you know, I, I know both of us have a concern about. I feel one of the most important questions anyone wanting to ex explore plant medicines or go see a shaman somewhere um, is why do you want a, to do a plant medicine ceremony? Um, personally, I feel it's an essential question to ask um, and gain clarity on before using plant medicines or even seeing a, sh a shaman, you know, so you, you, you get a lot of younger people doing it just because their friends are doing it or, you know, ayahuasca is getting cool. It's almost in vogue. It is in vogue and mushrooms and, you know, all the psychedelics are back in vogue now. So I, I, I'm forever running into people in my classes at the Institute telling me, oh, I microdose mushrooms every day. I'm microdosing LSD. I'm doing ceremonies with this and that and the other thing. And I'm, you know, when it's, I, as soon as I start hearing all this stuff, I'm like, okay, here we go. We're in deep water without a rudder. And um, so I think um, if you don't know why it is that you want to do a plant medicine ceremony to begin with, I don't think you're really looking at what your motives is. Therefore, you never really know if, if you're going into the right experience relative to what it is that you want to gain. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the most important thing about going into a plant ceremony is understanding your motivation. Yeah. It's such a deep personal experience. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and it can get exquisitely deep. I mean, you and I both know how deep, deep can get, but there's, I've been so deep in ceremonies that I honestly didn't know if I would ever make it back. Um, I literally wasn't sure if I was alive or dead. And um, those were definitely some of the most profound experiences I ever had. And it sure enhanced my sense of connection to life, to family, to, to everything, really, just to my body, to the joy of being alive. Um, you know, in all fairness, and, and this has happened too, I've, I've been in states where I was so in a completely, utterly expanded sense of union with all that is that the bliss of it all um, took away any desire to be on this physical plane. And that's one of the things when I'm running ceremonies, especially when you're using something like DMT that can blow you into that state of union faster than your ego can even analyze if the person conducting the ceremony is not aware of the power of an experience like that, then you may not be aware to look for the signs that that person's not coming back until it's too late or, you know, until their body turns blue and you have to do CPR or whatever. So I think because there's a lot of things you know, for example, a lot of people are looking to have their mind blown like that, but they don't realize just a little bit too much of any one of these medicines. And, and you could not only blow your mind, but blow yourself so far out of yourself that you forget to breathe and you don't even realize you have a body anymore. And the next thing you know, you're dead. And I personally know right now of six people that died uh, doing DMT. They never came back. And that's for one guy, those are all people I knew personally. That's a lot of people. So if I know six people, then that means there's a hell of a lot more out there 
um, that have ended their life trying to find themselves. I think you have to watch out for that. I mean, first of all, you go in and you think to yourself, what are, what are my reasons for doing this? You know, the very first one needs to be something positive. Mm. And so we got to find something positive. It's a, it's a wide variety of reasons from personal healing reasons to personal growth, to finding yourself, to getting out of the doldrums of life, of kicking things off, of expanded consciousness, learning, increasing intelligence, uh, seeing into the cosmos, understanding more about existence. But we want that to always be something in a direction of in tremendous positivity. And so I think yes. first we have to align the idea of positive. And then the second is to get out of the mindset that more is better. We have this Western concept of pushing the envelope and more with plant medicines is not better. It's the right amount of plant medicine at that time. And if a large dose is right and appropriate at that time, then you'll survive it and you could push the envelope and you could you know, see the veil of near-death experience, but you will come back. And it's part of, of going through a tremendous amount of training to understand appropriate dose and how to be able to manage somebody through that dose, which is a very interactive process that many people don't understand, that the different kinds of chants or ikaros, the ceremonial songs that are, are occurring in the ceremony are a form of guiding somebody, for instance, back to their body and guiding them to breathe and guiding them through different states of consciousness that help keep them alive while they've gone through a large dose. But the ultimate idea is that you only use the dose that you need to accomplish the purpose of your intention. And you can build up experience to larger uh, journeys without having to think that that's the purpose to begin with. And so I think you first come up with an intention that's incredibly personal and positive. And then you see whether or not that kind of plant medicine that you're thinking about doing is capable of delivering on that experience. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they think that any kind of plant medicine can be purposeful to what they're trying to achieve. And in reality, there's a vast difference between psilocybin mushrooms or cannabis or ayahuasca or San Pedro mescaline, et cetera. And so you want to know that the kind of plant medicine you're working with is appropriate to the purpose of your intention. And you're really there to fulfill your intention with the help of that medicine, which is why I like the term medicine. You treat it as a medicine. You don't treat it as an experience or a recreational drug. And truly as a medicine, it has a phenomenal capacity to be able to heal and cure as well as awaken and improve somebody's life. Yes. I think uh, you you touched on something important there. You know, one of the things that I see a lot of, and I'm sure you have too, is people whose lives are, for lack of a better term, fucked up. You know, they're maybe they're having a lot of repeated financial stress, relationship breakdowns, not able to hold a job. Um, you know, a lot of things that lead to a lot of inner chaos that typically would be better sorted out through meditation or um, even shamanic journeying without medicine, such as drumming and, and standard shamanic practices, but not using plant medicines, go into ceremonies without realizing that, you know, the medicine is going to op open you up to your unconscious and everything that's been repressed inside of you. And if you're not willing to work through that naturally, the depending on the dose and the type of medicine, 
you may actually have to deal with more of yourself than you're ready to handle in a medicine ceremony. And it can lead people to a lot of, you know, what they call a bad trip, but a lot of very frightening and scary experiences, which then often get blamed on the drug, but not realizing the medicine's only exposing what's in you. It's not bringing more of your problems to you. It's opening you to see what it is that you're creating with the consciousness that you're carrying and utilizing. So I think your comment that, you know, it should be a positive reason for doing a ceremony, not a negative one is very important. And I, I also think, how would you dis define where the threshold of, of mental stability is? Bef in other words, if you're, if you're already dealing with psychotropic drugs because you've got ADD or you've got anxiety disorders or you're taking prescribed medicine for something and or you're already in a, a crisis of self or a relationship crisis, um, how do you feel a person should, what are some tips for distinguishing whether those are the types of situations you should get professional help with? or shamanic help with without drugs versus using the plant medicines as a healing process? Is that a clear question? Yeah, it is. Uh, first, touching upon what you were saying before about meditation or energy practices, body-based practices like Tai Chi, et cetera, I haven't found a medicine culture that bases the entirety of their practices in plant medicines. So on the contrary, every single plant medicine culture that I've studied actually has a vast and wide array of other practices that are their daily practices, and they use acute intervention with plant medicine ceremonies. And the only people that do them with any frequency are the shamans who are trained to wield those medicines on behalf of their community and the, the participants in their ceremony or their patients. And so first of all, everybody is involved in other kinds of practices. And from a Western standpoint, you could think of them as meditative practices or some kind of energy-based practice to provide grounding, stability, support, mental stability, health, uh, you know, overall well-being. So first, you always start with that. And then you could look at whether or not there's a need for plant medicines. And I think you can start a treatment with plant medicine, but if you do, you have to be very aware of the fact that you're dealing with a tremendous delicateness in the, in the mental states at that time. So if you start the treatment with plant medicine, you're not going to go into a large dose of plant medicine. You're going to use an acute intervention in a ceremony with a very small dose of plant medicine to open up somebody to things that they might be blocked from, like their heart or uh, their spirit. And you're going to kind of get that back online. And then you're going to follow that with a tremendous integration program, which is going to be all about the other kinds of practices that you described. That's if you start with plant medicine and you're not going to do it on your own. And you're going to do it under the guidance of somebody trained in the art of healing that's going to take you on a journey. And that plant medicine ceremony or two or three that you would do at the beginning of treatment is going to kick off two months, three months, six months, or even a year of really a retraining of your daily life in an incremental step-by-step, -step, very logical and repeatable way to really build the life. And you'll have used the plant medicine as a catalyst. Now, the other way of doing this is you start these other practices, you start to balance yourself, you deal with the shadow within yourself and the difficulties that you're having uh, to begin with as you build up to a plant medicine ceremony. Okay, now if you do it that way, you'll have gained more foundation, you'll have gained more stability, 
you'll go into the plant medicine ceremony now looking to break through because you'll in your own daily practice now have come up against blocks that the practice in its in the, your current state is incapable of helping you get past or you're incapable of self-guiding through that blockage and then you're going to use the plant medicine to literally change the resonant state or vibratory state of your body and your spirit at that time. So very much like you're saying, living 4D, you're going to go into the 4D to make a change, a very specific intention-oriented guided change so that you can come back from that experience and continue your daily practices and really accelerate the nature of that growth and development. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you don't have a clear mental state, you're not ready for plant medicine ceremonies. If you have fear over confronting yourself and knowing yourself, and if you're still dealing with the inner child issues and you're still dealing with the inner shadow issues, what you need to do is be ready to work on those. And so you need to prepare yourself to be ready to see yourself and confront yourself in the totality of what you know is inside you. And I, I think the subconscious and unconscious is a misnomer in plant medicine practices because it's all conscious at that point. So if you're still in a place where your subconscious is negative for you and your unconscious is truly unconscious, then you have to be very careful about how you're going to interact with plant medicines so that we can ensure that you're going to have a positive experience. Part of that will be dose. Part of that will be intention. Part of that will be the types of plant medicines and um, the nature of the ceremony that you're, you're going to be part of. Yeah, the structure of the ceremony. Yeah, and the purpose of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I also think that this is a different approach. I think, you know, I shared with you, and, and I think you were in line with me on this. I've learned more from plant medicine work than I have from any human being alive. And I have recorded all my ceremonies and the ceremonies that I've done for others for healing purposes in journals. When I look back through those journals, which I illustrate and spend often hours mapping things out, and sometimes I just go back and, you know, there's probably, I don't know, 80 or 100 of these journals that I've got full now. And I take stock of all the things I've learned, either talking to spirit guides or talking to my soul or talking to tree spirits or plant spirits or the consciousness of the earth, Gaia, um, and, and any number of beings that you can meet. I've met many extraterrestrial beings in ceremonies and talked to them. But when I say, okay, if I looked at all the stuff I've learned from reading books and all the stuff I've learned from human teachers, I can honestly say I've learned more from my plant medicine experiences that actually have changed who I am, either confirmed or helped correct my perspective on life and beliefs and things like religious ideologies or what God is or what spiritual development is. Um, I, I, I can honestly say I've learned more from plant medicines than I have from any other source. And the point I'm driving at is I think there's a legitimate use for plant medicines for what I call spiritual research and also just to explore the, the, you know, the self with a small SELF is the wholeness of the individual, but the capital SELF in Jungian psychology relates to everything that supports you. So that would be the everything in the world, your friends, your family, all of nature. So I think for capital SELF exploration, 
plant medicines are extremely good for helping somebody really connect to the greater self, which can easily extend beyond the earth to the entire cosmos and beyond that. I think today when so many people are spiritually lost and religiously confused that a properly run series of ceremonies over time can really help a person individuate spiritually and find who they are and what their own living spiritual connection is, be it to nature, be it to God, be it to um, family, friends, to spirit guides, to power animals and things like that. Um, I just want to hear your thoughts in that regard. Well, first of all, I completely agree that the greatest teachers I've found are the plant medicines and the direction of intention. And so the first teachers I sat with, you know, said, drink this. And I did. And for me, it was chaos at first because I didn't know how to navigate the experience and how to sit with it and concentrate. And then I asked them, well, who teaches you? And they said, the spirits teach you. And I said, well, who, wh which ones? Who are your teachers? And they said, choose. And so, you know, by choosing teachers that, that come from the spirit world, like you mentioned, plants and the cosmos and what people call God, having that ability to tap into the plant medicines and have them show and expand in consciousness, uh, really show you what, what you're not yet aware of is by far the greatest teacher. How we get taught and how we navigate that, I think now is of the utmost importance because of this great expansion that's taking place around the use of these plant medicines. I think the plants have been teaching us for tens of thousands of years as a species, well before there was any notion of any kind of prohibition or well before there was even a name given to them. I don't see any right. reason to think that we weren't consuming them, which is also why we have the receptors in our brains to be able to interact with them. I think it's been a co-evolution for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or longer years. So I think it's, it's innate within us to learn in this experiential way. When I was first in the Amazon, one of the greatest things I realized was that the way I was going to learn an apprenticeship was not with a whiteboard or chalkboard with somebody sitting there lecturing to me about information, but that it was going to be this great experience that was going to push me in a number of different ways. It was going to push me through fear. It was going to push me physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I was going to have to give up uh, falsehoods and beliefs that were just fundamentally not true. I was going to have to open up and face the nature of the, the small self or the large self. I was going to have to face shadow, the unconscious and the subconscious, and ultimately work through what was just inside me. And one of the greatest gifts is an understanding that we're tapped into consciousness and consciousness is something much greater than just ourselves. And it's filled with everything humans have ever experienced, written about, talked about. It's the great collective of all of us. And we, we tap into that and it teaches us through those experiences, but you have to be ready. You have to embrace this expansive process that you go through. Um, you can't compare it to another kind of education. And that's the purpose of, of the shaman or the purpose of the medicine man as guide. The guide there is to help you, uh, you know, nudge you in the right direction when you, when you need some assistance and provide a tremendous amount of support and help and energy if you need that in ceremony and allow the plants the space to be able to give you that direct experience and be able to teach you. The negatives that people talk about um, 
I don't relate to them in the same way because I don't separate the negative from the person themselves in terms of the experience. I don't think someone had a bad trip. I think someone confronted themselves and different aspects of what happened inside their own psyche. And that if they continue working with that experience, I don't think that when they quote, come out of the, the, uh, the psychological effects or the the actual you know chemical effects of the of the ceremony itself that it's over i think the ceremony is just beginning and i tell people yes, all the I time that i'm still i'm still working through my first ceremony 20 years ago it's still it's still like the ohm echoing through me and it's still mm-hmm. teaching me and it's a it's a cumulative experience one that adds to the next that adds to the next and you continue to ultimately know more about yourself, know more about soul, know more about existence and why we're alive, both individually and collectively. What seems like a barrier in our knowledge is ultimately transcended. It has evolutions that go through it over the years. And uh, if you are somebody that wants to learn this way, I think that the plant medicines will always be the greatest teacher and the human teachers are there to help guide and provide support and community while we go through that expansion ourselves. Hello, everybody. March is the final month for the next intake of Czech Academy students. Your applications will be accepted until the last day of March. Czech Institute CEO Gavin Jennings and I created the Czech Academy to provide a multidisciplinary integrated learning and teaching system for the mastery of holistic health. The Czech Academy teaches each student how to assess each client physically, emotionally, and mentally, and develop a program that supports them in achieving their dream. You not only learn the essentials of diet and lifestyle modification, but how to design corrective and high-performance exercise programs scientifically. As I suspect you are all aware, there has never been a bigger need for truly holistic health professionals than there is today. So why not learn to master your own health and well-being and make a great living helping others create health, freedom, and live their dreams? The Czech Academy offers anyone genuinely interested in learning, practicing, and teaching holistic health principles and practices as an approach. The Czech Academy is ideal for anyone genuinely interested in learning, practicing, and teaching holistic health principles and practices. The Czech Academy is ideal for exercise professionals, allied medical professionals, therapists, or doctors interested in mastering the core principles of holistic health. You will learn all the assessment methods, program design skills, coaching, and behavioral change skills needed to enhance your existing practice or start in a fresh holistic health career. Czech Academy students are taught by the most skilled holistic health professionals in the world and supported by mentors and student forums. Scholarships are available, so apply now. We have one scholarship per region. We have the North America region, the South Pacific region, and the UK Europe region. Applications are welcome from new students and existing students within the Czech education system that are ready to join the academy and achieve mastery. To register for the Czech Academy, go to chekacademy.com. Once again, to register for the Czech Academy, go to chekacademy.com. We look forward to receiving your application by the last day of March. If we work together, we can bring real healing to the world. I think another important aspect, and, and I did a lot of spiritual research with plant medicines for this reason, and that is that so many people worldwide have been programmed from children with dogmatic religious beliefs, be it Catholicism, Judaism, Islam, um, even Buddhism, uh, all of them, right? They're all belief systems. And what, what I find is 
having worked with thousands of patients in my now almost 40 year career and track back what the beliefs are behind the choices that led to the illness, I almost always come to some rigid belief about what God wants or what God demands or, or the guilt and the shame that I've sinned because I masturbated or I had sex or whatever uh, the story is. But for me, as a therapist and as a human being, I just can't take something written in a book as though it's the word of God. So what I had to do for my own self, my own inner sense of truth, was I had to go into ceremony and ask my soul to teach me, you know, what does this Bible passage mean? and What is the true nature of God? What is the devil? And it, what is Satan about? What is Lucifer about? And and I've had encounters, multiple encounters with Lucifer, where I sat there and asked him questions, and you know, got to the bottom of things. And, and I, you know, if I had time to talk about that, I think it, it'd blow people's minds what would happen when you talk to this being. But the point I'm driving at is, you see, what happens is you now have a vehicle of your own personal, authentic, lived experience of engaging your soul or engaging God or engaging any number of sources of consciousness. And then you can look at the Bible or look at what other people are saying or what other people are warring about and have your own inner compass that says, boy, these poor people, they really have these weird ideas about God. If they only had a chance to have a personal relationship with God, and ask God these questions themselves, they wouldn't be so lost, confused, and destroying each other. So I really feel that the gift of the plant medicines from this perspective is it allows you to authenticate your own beliefs and or have them challenged in loving ways by highly intelligent aspects of consciousness that, as you know, when you engage a lot of these different levels of consciousness or beings, it's there's no question that they're, you know, undeniably more evolved than you can even put a, a measure on. You could say a million years more evolved, but it might be billions. I don't know. But I, for, I, I for example, have run into ETs in various experiences, a lot of them not on plant medicines, we're doing remote viewing. And I've been shocked and astounded at how, how far evolved they are compared to us. And, and so... I guess in a nutshell, what I'm saying is I think at this time in the world where there's so much division by race, by color, by sex, by religion, this is a really important time to develop your own authentic connection to your soul, to, to God, and to whatever you want to call your own belief system so that you actually can sit in your center and I find that doing that not only grounds the individual in the true self, which is really important, but it helps them have empathy and compassion for other people who have bought into consciously or unconsciously these belief systems and don't realize it just become pawns on the chessboard for somebody who's making a lot of money off of their belief. I'm just leaving space for you to comment. Oh on yeah, that. no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm listening. I'm, I'm listening. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. I think right now in time we have a very uh, polarized notion of philosophy to try to describe 
what's happening in the world. So you could describe what's happening in the world any way you want, but what the way it's being described is in this very uh, tremendous polarization. You mentioned the polarization of race, uh, political systems, this us versus them, gender, uh, et cetera. And I think a lot of us aren't aware of the fact that our belief systems drive us and that we weren't yeah. born with the belief systems that we have today. And so there's no. a, been a tremendous um, form of manipulation around belief and a tremendous form of manipulation in, like you say, for profit purposes or power purposes, et cetera. And control. plant medicines give us the control. Yeah, absolutely. They give us an opportunity to, to be able to be witness, bear witness instead of being, uh, you know, prodded by. And often what happens is these waves and veils are kind of lifted through these experiences as we go through onset and we kind of start to wake up in our own consciousness and fact, it becomes much easier to parse from fiction and that which is being uh, manipulated and controlled all of a sudden has that kind of quality associated with it. And having that ability to sit in your own soul and sit in the true nature of your own spirit again, I think is one of the great gifts. And one of the very important things that's happening now in the expansion of the use of these kinds of medicines. We have to pierce through the veil and be able to both see ourselves, but also see the important role that we have within our society so that we can align ourselves with what will help us be successful and be positive. And being a pawn on anyone's chessboard is ultimately not supportive of your soul and supportive of the real reasons why you're alive. And so taking that into consideration and using that as a reason to explore these kinds of medicines, I think, is one of those positivities that we discussed earlier in the podcast. Yeah, I, I mean, to summarize that very succinctly, anytime you're a pawn on someone's chessboard, you have, you're participating in an abusive relationship, which will never turn out good in the long run. The problem is we have, have it going on on a, on a worldwide scale now, as you're well aware. So I think right now when people are so confused and scared and don't know what the hell's going on and you got the World Economic Forum doing all of its crazy stuff and there is no God, there is no soul, you're a hackable animal, you'll own nothing and rent everything and be happy and you be in an electronic jail. I think, um, I think paradoxically... Now is the time to find a guy like Hamilton and get the guidance to develop your own inner sense of connection. Because if you don't have your own inner sense of connection to God or to soul or to spirit or whatever you want to call it, you're very, very susceptible to manipulation because they're going to and are using every form of way to divide people, which is the first strategy to conquer and brainwash them. And I think that well-run plant medicine ceremonies can really anchor you in your authentic self and give you a real good capacity to discern, you know, bullshit from reality. Yeah, agreed. You have to find yourself in the ceremonies and you have to sit there and see both what has happened to you and what you can do. So part of it is witness and part of it is empowerment. And the point of personal empowerment is so that you can make decisions on your own. On the last retreat, I was talking about this with people is that really the, the higher dimensional aspects of ourself is controlled by our choice. And so the reason why our choice is so important for groups that want to manipulate it is specifically to control you. But the choice is truly your own. And so if you take the power of your choice back 
over what you eat, what you consume, both in terms of food and media, in terms of your behavior, the relationships you have, how you conduct yourself in your life. If you take that back, you become an agent of your own creation. And you can start to create from a center of your own power and a center of your own values and really the purpose, I think, behind your existence. And so I agree that now is the time more than any. And I really appreciate the concept around an electronic jail because we're being forced to participate in a many number of different kinds of of technology-based control systems that, you know, are unbelievably difficult for us. And they're causing a tremendous amount of stress and mental illness for people without even realizing it. A lot of people come and they just naturally don't want to be on their devices when they come on the retreats with us. And they feel such a liberation and like instant liberation just from half a day to a day being away from constantly being prodded into a certain kind of electronic action or response. And so I think taking control of that choice again within yourself, using the plant medicines as a means to be able to both discern and empower gives you that ability to then, as you go forward in your life, realize how much importance you have and how much you can use that to guide and direct yourself on a daily basis. I agree a hundred percent. And I'm just grateful, Hamilton, that Kyle turned me on to you. I mean, others did too, but Kyle was the one that pushed me over the hill because, you know, he's one of my best friends in the whole world and he never, ever encourages me to interview or meet anybody that doesn't have a real purpose behind it. And there, it's just very hard to find spiritually evolved, grounded, properly trained people when it comes to plant medicines and that speak English. And I think as expensive as it might be to fly out to Peru to see a guy like you, for a lot of people, it's an important concept and environment shift to get them away. You know, it's hard to get somebody off of drugs if everybody around them keeps putting drugs in their face. It's hard to get off of gluten if everybody in your family keeps putting gluten in front of you. And I think it's hard to get out of the matrix. If you stay in the matrix, even if you're using plant medicines, you're still in a culture and most people are in families that are so already caught in the game that they don't even realize how lost they are. So when you go out and disconnect like that and get into a completely different environment with native people and with the medicines and with the ceremonial practices and the diets, you really have a chance to absorb without the toxicity of what you're trying to heal from so that when you come out of the ceremony and you come back home, you're, you're now acutely aware of where you were when you left home and you can easily see even how people that you really thought you knew are actually potentially dangerously caught up in the whole thing. And then just by being there with them and and being centered in yourself and having that spirit moving through you, I think you can help people heal just by being yourself. You don't really have to become the doctor or the medicine man. All you got to do is just share your perspective, share what you've learned, share what you've experienced and inspire other people to wake up in any way they're willing to wake up. We're experiencing now a great awakening. And I think the great ripple effect is the willingness to just start living your authentic true self 
and you come to these kinds of experiences, and I agree that it might seem daunting for some to ultimately come and travel, but it's actually easier than you would think. <laughs> it's pretty easy now. You buy an airline ticket and you fly down and you literally fly into the city with, you know, where jets land, and then you're taken care of all the way to the lodge. Uh, you're walked through step by step, really, you know, your hands held every single step of the way. And the same thing through the ceremonies themselves. And I really appreciate how you touch upon not only the plant medicines, but also the environment that helps create the experience. And that was something that I spent a lot of time on when I created this to really give people what was the essentials that they needed to be really comfortable and at the same time be able to be fully immersed in this environment that is this incredible biosphere in nature that's supporting them. So instead of it being this, you know, silicon reality and, uh, you know, like architecturally created space, it's instead of it's being enveloped in nature, but in an unbelievably safe and comfortable way. And the lodges that we use and go to are, you know, top of their class. And so you have all the amenities that you would expect. And at the same time, you have the presence of nature right there with you. And you realize how nature is your greatest support coach and cheerleader through the, the experience. Going back to your normal daily life after that, all you have to do is start to implement what you learned in the ceremonies themselves. And that's a step-by-step -step process. And we go through how to do that. And we also have different integration packages and coaching practices to support that process. But it's, it's literally an incremental step-by-step -step, uh, implementation of what you've learned and the clarity that you've gained. Could be micro changes to macro changes in, in your diet. It could be some conversations that you needed to add with people that create a watershed moment that just opens up the energy and allows things to flow and uh, bonds to be formed and repaired. It could be recognizing that certain people are toxic that you didn't even know that and uh, deciding that you need to either distance yourself from them, change those relationships or actually help them realize it. And miraculously, they can make changes within themselves. People report that all the time in their families that they say, like, I, I can't distance myself from my family on the contrary. And I say, well, just go there with an open heart. And they're like, oh, that'll never work. And they're writing me a week later saying, I can't believe it. I showed up with an open heart and all of a sudden people came to me and they started talking with me. And like my family members have in years and healing took place. And I just said, you know, you're at a different level now. You've up leveled the game and the people around you are responding to that. And so I think you can start to implement these changes in a step-by-step -step way. And I promote a practice that I developed about how you can break up your day into 10, 15, 20 little micro moments to stay connected and to set intention and be mindful of yourself and your surroundings and uh, how to be able to use that as a really easy way to start to implement these changes. And uh, I think if we do that, that ripple effect is exponential in how much impact it has, not only on ourselves, but the closest people to us. And then that ripple effect going out into society and our communities, and that it's something that's really important to pursue now. Um, I think the positive energy behind it grows and catalyzes and ultimately is the solution that we're looking for. Yeah, beautiful. I'm in harmony with you for sure. Hamilton, I feel one of the most important things that we as healers, guides, or shaman on behalf of our client or as an individual seeking to engage plant medicines is to determine where one is at in their overall life development. Um, to, to do that effectively myself, I developed 
based on a lot of study and clinical experience, I developed a four archetype system that I created, and it includes the following archetypes. It begins with the child archetype, which is what we all know a child to be. But a child is can be a child at any age. A child is someone who is codependent on parents or parent figures. So for example, if someone's living on welfare when they don't really need to, but they've just uh, become accustomed to government handouts, they would classically be in the child archetype in my system, regardless of the age of their body. The warrior archetype begins when we go through puberty and we begin to reject our parents' ideas. And that phase of our development is where we have to decide who we choose to be and what we choose to keep or reject from our parental conditioning or parents' ideas. And it's where we, it's the stage of our life where we have to decide what values we're willing to live for, but also willing to die for. Like there's certain things that I will not do, even if it comes at the price of death. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow somebody to harm my children. You know, for example, when the whole vaccination thing was going crazy and there was reports of them going door to door and um, putting parents that wouldn't vaccinate their kids in, in um, lockups and taking kids away. Um, I, I, I just said to my wives, I said, they best not come here to do that because it'll, it'll be a showdown. I will not let them take my children and do that. I'm willing to die for that. So there's the warrior archetype. The warrior has to discern what values are you willing to live for and what are you willing to die for? And that was the function of all initiation ceremonies in native tribes was to knock the child out of the child so that the warrior could step up and know what is it that you're protecting? What are you willing to die for? And what are you willing to protect so you can live for. So the warrior cycle is someone who's really still trying to discern who they are, what their values are, what they are willing to defend, what they're willing to put their life on the line for, who their people are, and what their belief about life, about nature, about values is. And that we carry all these archetypes in us. So we transcend, but include if we're healthy. So the warrior still should have the child in them. They shouldn't lose their spontaneity, their creativity, their open-mindedness, for example. The warrior evolves to the king or the queen, and, and, and the, each step of the way, the number of people that evolve drops down because each one takes a higher level of conscious and or spiritual development. So the king or queen becomes the individual who has reached a high level of success in their career. They're highly skilled at something. They're not dependent upon others for income. They usually have their own resources, their own companies. So someone like that would be uh, some, someone like Stevie Wonder or uh, Clint Eastwood or um, Oprah Winfrey would be a queen. Or And it's not just people at that level. It's someone who's really skilled at what they do. And they have their own, shall we say, kingdom. They they can pay their own bills. They have their own living philosophy. They're well-centered in themselves. They know what they're doing, why they're doing it. Now, that doesn't mean they may not be negative because you can be a negative child or a positive child, a negative warrior or a positive warrior, a negative king or a queen. 
and be dark and controlling or be loving and supportive. The tipping point for spiritual development then comes at the king and the queen because the king and the queen usually get so caught in the world and in identifying themselves with material excess, material accumulation, but they reach a point of emptiness and come to a choice point where they have to decide where are their values at, what's important to them. And by this time, they're usually in their midlife and they start thinking about, well, what, what do I want to leave behind? So the biggest evolution is when the king or queen transitions into the wise man or wise woman. And to put this into another context, the child archetype is oriented towards sex and violence love. Sex and violence love means you're still learning how gravity works, what'll burn you, what'll cut you, that dogs bite. You're still learning that not everybody that looks nice is, is nice. People can give you candy on Halloween that's poison. So there, the sex and violence stage of loving means that it's, it's, there's a lot of polarity. It's not well controlled and there's not enough consciousness to understand how to manage love. The warrior is the introduction to conditional love where you learn in order for relationships to work and business agreements to work that there has to be some agreed upon contractual relationship. So if you rent a car, you have to bring it back in good enough shape that they're not going to charge you for it. If you rent uh, a house, you can't destroy it or you're going to have to pay for it. So conditional love means I love you if these criteria are met. I love you and you've got to be able to do this or that or the relationship's going to break down. The king or the queen is kind of the master of conditional loving because they have to run an empire and without rules and regulations, you can't hold an empire together. The wise man and the wise woman is the beginning of the pathway of authentic, empathetic, and compassionate love in which they actually begin to see everybody in themselves. They can find the criminal in themselves. They can find the cheat or the liar in themselves because they've evolved enough to realize that everything that they used to criticize about other people, they can now realize they too did that at some point in their lives. So they begin to have empathy and compassion for all beings and all people and all situations because they know that we're all human and we're all loving the best we can with the life experience, the depth of wisdom, knowledge, and uh, leadership that we've had. So when I'm looking at, when someone comes to me that wants to do plant medicines, the first thing I'm doing is, you know, not, there's a lot of things I do, but when I look at them and I interview them, I'm looking, is this person still a child? And if they're 40 years old and they're still in the child archetype and they're coming to me with these challenges in their life, most of which can be managed just by taking responsibility for their body and their, and their choices, is plant medicines really what they need right now? Or do they just need to learn what it means to be an adult and how to be one? If the warrior's coming to me and they want to use plant medicines, but they're full of polarity and they think they need to kill people or get rid of people or censor them out of existence, are they ready for dealing with that polarity when they have to look into the mirror of themselves with X number of grams of a given medicine? Or do I need to actually spend some time working with them to depolarize them, help them see in a broader sense, and get them ready to confront themselves in a healthier, safer way? If they're a king or a queen, are they so full of themselves that they're going to have a hard time meeting their shadow when the medicine shows it to them 
and run like hell or become a royal pain in the ass to work with, the wise man and the wise woman, we don't have to worry about them because usually they're the people that you give plant medicines to and they say it just confirms everything that they've learned through life and they go, thank you for the experience. So the question is, as a shaman, do you feel that it's important to put people into some kind of a framework so that you can say, where are they at in their evolution of life? Because this is what I call the life process archetypes. And does that orientation change how you handle, select the medicine or dose the individual? Or do you even need something from like this from your perspective? First, I think that you have a you know very developed map that helps frame and understand where somebody's at in their own development and certain things that could help them move on and improve themselves. And I think that, um, you know, plant medicine practitioners are going to be offering plant medicines as the means to help somebody move through all four of those different archetypes and um, improve themselves, knowing that the child is going to move into the warrior and the warrior is going to move to the king and queen and the king and queen is going to move to the wise person. Right. Uh, idea of the use of plant medicines from a perspective of like uh, kind of purposeful plant medicine practice to each one of those archetypes will differentiate how you're going to work with that person. So dose would be different, the kinds of plant medicines, what kinds of experiences they're supposed to have, how you're going to guide and direct them into intention and what would their intention ultimately be. The plant medicine can be used as a form of accelerant to help somebody through that developmental stage but really what is the greatest accelerant is the willingness to implement what they learn in the plant medicine ceremony into themselves, like a self-oriented implementation to grow and understand that no matter where we are in our life, we're growing towards something and that that's part of our, our ever learning, our consistent progress and development, and that we have to be open to that idea. And so I, I shy away from the notion that we're fixing something as much as supporting somebody to move beyond uh, something inside them that could be seen as being broken or needing that support to be able to, to grow past. I, I really do like the frame that you provide. And as you described it, I can relate to how people go through that, how all people go through that uh, evolutionary trajectory and how those archetypes are represented both within the traditional apprenticeship and the tests of virtue that you go through to ultimately accelerate that process of growth so that you can be wise and still young so that you can then support the community around you, even though you wouldn't have had years upon years or decades upon decades to be able to amass that wealth of knowledge. And it's also indicative of why the people who've been on a path of knowledge, typically when their elders are seen to have amassed so much more knowledge, because they've just had so much more time living to be able to uh, both have bear witness and gone through it themselves in their own evolutionary process. So it's not the application of information, but knowledge gained through you know each and every breath second by second having lived witnessed seen uh carried the soul through that journey and um you know in terms of of the support around the plant medicines i think that that's as important to the journey as the medicines them, themselves so to give you an example i was helping a young person this week through rite of passage and the focus of that journey is very much the child to the warrior and part of the training was about 
letting go of the the part of youth that isn't ready yet to step into the role of warrior, but also part of stepping into the role of warrior to surrender and release the arrogance and hubris that leads to a lot of pain and suffering through that warrior archetype. So be ready to stand on your own two feet, use the heart and use divinity and use an intention to support the the development of soul into the warrior to be able to filter that information and those values, like you said, but not be in opposition to the greater forces uh, like the educational systems or rejecting all of the teachings of the elders that don't seem to fit, you know, so to not move into that place of arrogance and hubris, but rather to stay centered in love and centered in heart on that transition from child to warrior. And then we had people that were, uh, you know, incredibly successful in their life that had been in a sense, king and queen in their roles in society. And they were looking now for greater wisdom. And we were all part of the same group. And the teachings to them was about the deep healing of the child to warrior to king and queen that, that is still needed to be able to move into wisdom and how there's a movement to allow innocence to flow through the body in a truly pure way where soul has been reawakened from the essence of life, even in the the embryonic or pre-embryonic stage of life going all the way through birth and having lived through the trials and tribulations of those other three sets of archetype and then how to be ready to fully embrace uh, wisdom. And we talked about it in terms of source consciousness experience and opening the consciousness to divinity and the wholeness of the universe and transcending that binary duality of good and bad and light and dark to be able to really perceive the light uh, through everything that is our consciousness and how we could understand ourselves as beings of light and how we could understand ourselves as extensions of divinity or the channelers and, and expressors of this type of divinity in this human form and what we would expect beyond life itself as we move into the universal states of consciousness. And so in that way, the plant medicine could be used to support somebody in all of the the uh, transitional states, but it's always supported by something else. And then again, dose, you're thinking about the appropriateness of dose to intention and how intention can uh, relate to the experience that somebody's going to have. And so it's this, this combination of the guidance plus the dose plus the intention and the going to spirit and the, the representation of spirit as that catalyst and that support. Now, that's very different what I just described to a group of people getting together in a living room and saying, hey, let's just take some mushrooms tonight, you know, just for fun. Or, hey, let's do this even for our own personal development. And play right? Guns we, and we, Roses. <laughs> sure. Or, yeah. Or just throw on a playlist that's that's called Spiritual Playlist 3 for Ayahuasca off SoundCloud or something, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, it's different. It's very, very different. And in those cases, I would I would say to many people, you know... Think first about what you need and what's going to help you understand that the plant medicines are a dual-edged sword. I don't think they're positive and negative. I think one is a catalyst for change and one can set you up to have to work through something for so long that it didn't catalyze and accelerate anything. And right. so at that point, I think like, you know, going back to that idea, am I going to use this to start a process or am I using this to move forward in a, in a process that I'm already in? And I think if I use that lens, I could say, okay, in the, the child archetype, you know, in someone who's in their mid-20s or 30s, I was uh, in 
in Vegas at a conference actually uh, recently, kind of a rare scenario that I was there. And I saw a, a group of, of adults, they were all between 30 and 60 years old, and they were all still in the child archetype trying to be warriors. They were trying yeah. to move into that stage of warrior. And, you know, so much of the maleness in America has been sort of restrained and kind of retarded in its development and hasn't really been allowed to fully, fully grow and express itself in a positive way and in a healthy way. And so it gets this myopic view, uh, you know, placed on it of, of this, you know, toxic form and expression of it. And I want to say that that's an immature form in an old body that hasn't been allowed to fully, that hasn't been allowed to progress. It hasn't been allowed to, to evolve and grow. So I go back to that lens. Does that person need to start a process or does that person need to catalyze a, a change within themselves now? And if it does, then we find the appropriate way to be able to, to start that. But in, in you know, all honesty, for most people, a, a, the beginning of a practice that they can do every day that reinforces the personal state of discipline, that makes you confront your own mind, that allows you to connect with things that we dissociate from, like the breath and our feelings and our understandings of our emotional state, is really what the, the first stages of plant medicine is doing anyway. And so you could do those without the need of plant medicine, or you could use plant medicine as a support to that. If you are going to use it as a support to that, you have to know how. And that's where the guide or the facilitator or the shaman comes into play. And you need a good one because a bad one is just going to mess you up. I mean, it's, it's a detriment to the process. And so then I would say, look to all these tools that have been amassed that are incredibly powerful. Let's use those tools. Let's start to implement them in our life. And then let's look for where we find struggle and blockage. And then let's look at what we can do to, to support you to ascend beyond that. And, uh, and start to apply that because it's the application of these practices that mean more than just having the experience. So we can have the most amazing plant medicine experience, but if we don't apply it, that was just a night of our lives. But if we apply it, it changes the totality of the, the context and the texture of our life going forward. And I think that's where the real fruit is of the experience. And if we change our life, we change every life that we touch. It's, it's, that's just the, the, like, like you say, the ripple effect. And, and one of the things that I've seen that's a problem in my estimation is that, you know, Timothy Leary used to say, tune in, turn on and drop out. And what I've seen many times, because, you know, we have some over 60,000 students that have been through the Institute or are, are in it now. And so I'm in front of a lot of young people that are out there, you know, blowing their minds. But one of the things that we are constantly dealing with is people will join the academy. They'll stick at it for, you know, maybe six months or eight months or a year. Then they'll drop out. And then having interviewed a lot of these people and talked to them, it's a habit that they have. They can't stick through a process. They don't have the adult quality of doing the work to develop mastery at something because they want this instant gratification. They want to do a weekend seminar and then tell everybody they're an expert at the lumbar spine or something. And so what I've seen a lot of with people that do plant medicines, usually too much, not skilled application, mixing medicines and kind of just like kids in a candy shop is that they actually don't get more conscious and get more evolved they they actually start 
becoming more and more passive about their life and, and have a harder and harder time stepping into the role of being an adult contributor to society, family, friends, culture, and world. And, and I think one of the problems is that if you're not doing a, a plant medicine ceremony with a skilled leader that has truly done the work to evolve themselves to be capable of leading most every other person on the planet, except for the ones that are as evolved or more involved than, than they are, then you, you don't have that person's, if you have someone that's really done the work to develop themselves and grow themselves and become a real adult, that their presence and their psyche creates a stabilizing field that changes the outcome of the whole experience. So even if you left the music the same and the medicine the same, having that person in your presence actually creates a shift in the environment that stabilizes everybody in the room and can dr dramatically change the outcome. So for example, someone who may not have confronted their shadow without that person in the room will now actually show the signs of someone struggling. The person, the guide will pick it up and sit there and work with them and teach them how to navigate it and what to do and how to relate to it and how to ask better questions. And they'll come out of that a transformed person where without that, you just blew your mind and went further into the dropout kind of relationship with life. And that, that to me is a, a concern. I agree. The, the whole concept of dropping out, I think, was you know misguided to begin with. You can't drop out of life, and you can't drop out of society, and you can't drop out of yourself. You just can't. You're part of it. Whether we like it or not, whether we wish it were different, we have to just accept the fact that we are part of, and that means engage. Now, the role, the traditional role of the plant medicine practitioner is the leader of their community or spiritual leader of their community with the responsibility of also being the doctor of their community. So there's no dropping yes. out. There's no dropping out. On the contrary, it's one of the highest, most important roles inside the tribal society to maintain the tribal society going forward, including the maintaining of the oral traditions and histories. It's part encyclopedia. It's part the spiritual guidance and the connection to existence in the cosmos. It's part the traditions that are maintained. It's part medicine, which goes down to how you heal a sprained ankle or a dislocated shoulder or a snake bite, all the way to what happens when somebody's been through extreme trauma and loss within the tribe and they need to have the, their emotional body reset and they need to be moved beyond what are the things that start to cause the need of, of PTSD and addiction and different kinds of anxiety disorders that we know of in our society. So it's such a misnomer to think to turn to psychedelic medicines and drop out of anything. It's, a, I think, the exact opposite, actually. It's you get turned on to life, you get turned on to truth, you get turned on to spirit, and now you need to use that to engage. And the engagement is a holistic engagement of every aspect of your life, now taking the intention to improve it to improve it from a place of personal responsibility for your, yourself and others and really giving to yourself that kind of self-care and love that can be taught through the plant medicines themselves. And I've heard this in the, in the space that they're called plant medicines. And I try to explain to people, they're only used as medicines if you treat them that way. Right. So people can take pharmaceutical medicines and they create a drug habit. 
And you can take psychedelic plants and create a drug habit. And you can take all sorts of things, including petrochemicals and create a drug habit. Like we, we need to be careful about our, the way we discuss the use of the term medicine to understand that medicines are used when treated as a medicine for really medicine oriented or medical purposes. And it blurs the line in the plant medicine community because of the combination of spirituality, personal growth and development, expansion of consciousness. It's not just the treatment and healing of illness, disease, or injury, but it is an understanding of where you're coming from when you're engaging with these visionary substances. And so I think that when we treat them as medicines, they treat us back in a positive way. And then we understand that we're improving something fundamental to ourselves, to our consciousness, to our spirit and the other people around us. And if we want to treat them as drugs, we can, but that, that is ultimately not the purpose of medicine. That is not the way that they're handled inside tribal societies. The people in the tribes don't even have access to them to treat them that way. Uh, they are literally controlled substances in the sense of controlled by the, the sacred carriers of those medicines and shared when appropriate. And that that's something that's actually lacking and missing in our Western understanding of the plant medicine culture. And one of the main purposes of the revival inside Blue Morpho Academy to be able to teach that understanding of how these are medicines to support uh, real medicine oriented purpose. And I agree that there's a... Uh, deconstruction that takes place. There's a dissociation that takes place. And there's an ultimate breakdown that takes place if we don't use them in responsible ways. And you, you articulated perfectly the symptoms of that, where you see people withdraw and you see, uh, you know, very egoic states start to take over and the shadow starts to take over. And there's more and more need of these experiences to quote, get back there and feel okay and be connected. And those are all uh, symptoms of misuse that we can also watch out for and uh, try to minimize within our communities. Hi, everybody. You know, when I first tried Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes, I had a noticeable increase in energy and an improved sense of stability in my body. This really surprised me because I did not suspect that I needed electrolytes. My wife, Penny, has been drinking a glass in the evening, eliminating the cramps she had been getting at night in her calves, and has been getting a more restful, uninterrupted sleep. Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes come in three flavors, orange, lemon lime, and watermelon. Electrolytes improve electrical conductivity in our nervous system, improve our capacity to retain water, support us with essential minerals and trace minerals, supporting the regulation of our hormonal system, body systems, and helping with overall well-being. For athletes that train hard and get a good sweat, Paleo Valley's electrolytes can be the difference between a great workout and an average workout, the difference between crossing the finish line first or looking at butts and heels as you cross it. A combination of electrolytes and water was found to be most effective at preventing increased anxiety, fatigue, and headaches. Migraines and headaches in general can result from dehydration, low calcium and or magnesium, trace mineral deficiencies, and hormonal imbalances. So why resort to drugs and painkillers that ultimately do nothing to address the common causes of headache when you can drink Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes and support your body in many ways at the same time? And you can reduce or eliminate sugar cravings that often result from a lack of sodium while giving your body a wide variety of minerals and trace minerals to support it. Most electrolytes offered on the market use synthetic isolated nutrients that do not contain the full spectrum of compounds found in organic whole foods. 
Paleo Valley's Essential Electrolytes contains ancient, unprocessed sea salt with dozens of minerals and over 60 trace minerals your body needs. You will also enjoy the pure organic coconut powder and the refreshing flavor and essential potassium it provides. Together, this is a perfect balance of ingredients that will not only give you improved capacity for exercise, better hydration, and reduce chances of unwanted headaches, muscle cramping, and premature fatigue, but will support your body with the essential minerals and trace minerals that help keep you balanced and in a state of well-being. Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes are also third-party tested to ensure purity in all ingredients. To get your essential electrolytes now, go to paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O valley.com and save 15% on your purchase using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15. That's check in all caps, 15. Check 15 on checkout. My family and I use Paleo Valley's excellent products every day and love them, and I'm very confident you will too. One of the things that came up in my mind, I didn't have it in our outline, but I want to bring it up because it's very, very important, and I'm going to tell a story just to show how important it is, and that is most of the people that are out there doing plant medicines um, don't really know where the medicines are coming from. And and this is more important when you get to things like chemicals like LSD, MDMA, um, anything that's synthesized, what could, it could be, um, mescaline, it could, you know, there's so many things out there on the market, but the problem is, is, you know, there's all sorts of grades of chemists out there from very skilled to very unskilled. And there's, you know, something like 75 derivations of the LSD molecule. And the one, of course, that Albert Hoffman brought to us was LSD 25. But one of the things, and I've actually had multiple people get injured. uh, And I can tell you of a couple of cases so that people listening know this is important to pay attention to. Um, I had two, three people get badly injured with a guy that was running ceremonies who, let's just say, um, was putting people's lives at risk. He bought what he thought was LSD from a source that he didn't know was a new source. And I won't tell the whole story because it's just a total story of what should never happen. And it's just too long to tell. But ultimately what happened is three of the people that were actually students that were students of mine that happened to have I didn't even know they had done this. They went and saw this guy, but then they got really badly injured and came to me because nobody knew what to do with them. One of them was so bad off, he had to shut his business down, move into his parents' home, which tremendous financial stress on them because they're trying to help rescue his business so he didn't go broke. And he had to end up with about $35,000 worth of tests because the hospital couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with him. And then he finally came to me. And so I used... some of my spiritual abilities to look inside of his body clairvoyantly. And what I saw all through all three of them was the same thing. And it looked like an oil slick all through their brain. Like, you know, when oil hits water, how it makes that rainbow like colorful sheen on the water, you can see there's oil in the water. Well, it looked like when I looked into them with my clairvoyant vision all through their brain, I was seeing what looked just like an oil slick. And I knew immediately that was not a natural energy 
I can actually see the aura very clearly. And the aura was very distorted. And it was as though the brain had been wrapped in plastic. And it was causing tremendous psychological problems, suicidal thoughts, depression, anxiety at the same time, going from anxiety, depression, to wanting to kill themselves, to not being able to function. I mean, this is a mess. And so it turns out that, and not only that, the guy that, that ran the ceremony's girlfriend got injured and ended up reaching out to me for help. All of them had severe brain problems. And so when I looked into it, what I found out was that medicine was not really LSD. It was something else, and, or it was an LSD that wasn't properly made, or it was made out of something that it shouldn't have been made out of, some crazy street drug. The other one was, and this is a sad story, so forgive me if I start crying when I tell it. One of my students, who had always been one of these too cocky for his own good guys, um, who would do things like take large doses of LSD and then go scuba diving or skin diving, which is never a good idea to use LSD and get in water because you forget that it's not water. You forget it's water and you think it's air. You start breathing it. And I know I've known several people to drown doing that. So getting in rivers, lakes, streams, swimming pools, and jacuzzis on LSD is a bad idea. And um, knowing his history... He's working on me as my massage therapist, and he was a very good massage therapist, and he just happened to mention, oh, and I'd already gotten wind through the grapevine that he was one of these guys starting to do journeys and charge people to do journeys, and he, I knew damn well he didn't know what the hell he was doing, and I also knew he has one of those warrior, uh, half-cocked warrior personalities, but he says to me, out of the blue, he goes, Paul, he says, I bought some DMT on the black market. And I'm going to be doing it this weekend. Is there anything I should know about it? And man, my soul lit me up like a Christmas tree. I literally, every meridian in my body lit up with electricity. And I went, oh shit, this is bad news. And I immediately had this intuitive sense that something was wrong. Normally, I would never do this. Because I, I for a lot of reasons, you would understand. But I said, look, I know telling you not to do it isn't going to work because I know who you are and I know your personality and you're probably going to even do it more if I tell you not to. So I'm going to show you what DMT looks like, smells like, its texture. So I showed him several different grades of it, types of production. And I said, if it doesn't match one of these, you should not use it. Ready for the punchline? My next massage was the following weekend. I got a call two days before my massage from his roommate. And he said, Paul, you don't know who I am, but I am so-and-so's roommate. And I have to tell you something really sad. He died yesterday. I said, what the hell? What happened? He said, well, he took me on a DMT journey. We were laying on the bed. We each took a hit out of the pipe. He said, something happened to me. He said, I, my whole body went crazy. I, I've, I've never experienced this. I've done a lot of psychedelics, and I, I've never experienced anything like this. But I, my heart started racing so fast, it felt like it was going to jump out of my head. I was hyperventilating. I was scared to death. I couldn't control my body. 
And he said, I rolled over. I was screaming for help from JR, rolled over, and he wasn't breathing, and he, was, and he, and he, he had died. So I said to him, what did the substance look like? He said it was a white powder, just like chalk. I said, immediately, that's not DMT. I said, how much did he put in the pipe? He put about three times the normal dose in the pipe. Well, the lab report came back because I actually got a hold of him. He got a hold of the coroner. The coroner gave him the, the report. Turned out to be a street drug called I-25. I'd never heard of it before, but apparently the coroner had said there'd been about 25 deaths in the last couple of months from people thinking this was DMT. It was being sold on the black market as DMT, and it's a very dangerous drug that masquerades as DMT. And now I knew immediately why when he told me that he was going to do DMT that I had a, such a strong spiritual reaction. Like, you know, I, I, I knew immediately trouble was in the, in the, in the area, and, and I had to do my best to, to warn him to be very, very careful, and he's dead now. So the, the point I want to bring on the table, for those of you out there that just go shopping around in parks and video game arcades and to buddies, if you don't know exactly who made that medicine and you don't know that you can trust them and you don't have enough knowledge and skill to discern that medicine from cheaper grades or that are not even that medicine, you could be putting your life at risk or many other people's life at risk because I've known people to try to drive on these drugs and crash cars and get people killed and get themselves killed. This is not something to fuck around with. And, and when you work with someone that really knows what they're doing, like Hamilton does, then you already know these things are already taken care of and then you're in safe hands and whatever's going into your body is for that purpose and is not going to be dangerous to you because it's being made inappropriately or used inappropriately. So I, I just felt compelled to share that because we have this, as you know, this booming generation of young people running out buying this shit like candy, but they haven't got a clue what they're buying half the time. And I've already seen many cases. I could tell you a lot more cases. I just chose a couple right off the top of my head, and I'm sure you've probably seen the same. Yeah, it's a tremendous problem. Um you know, and please understand that prepared plant medicine concoctions that go by certain names don't always have the same ingredients. And so there's ayahuasca that is not ayahuasca. It's not even the Banisteriopsis capi vine. It's not Psychotra vidris plant leaf. It's not anything. It's I've heard of uh, fraudsters and charlatans making mixtures of coffee with petrochemical drugs and mixing it all together and calling it ayahuasca and selling it on the streets. Um, you know, in our case, fundamentally, we prepare all our own medicines. We start with the raw plants themselves. We know the source of where we get the plants as a raw plant. We can all, uh, you know, identify the plant itself. And then we prepare our own medicines. So we know exactly what it is that we're consuming. And we would never consume plant medicine from somebody that we didn't know who made it and that they had the skill and the knowledge of how they made it. In our case, our lineage is passed down for more than seven generations, the recipes of how to be able to create the different plant medicines. Uh, it's very important to understand that and to understand the sources, like you said, of, of where these are coming from. The horror stories are endless and um, it's sad that they get intertwined in name with the actual plant medicines because 
I-25 is something I've never even heard of. So I hadn't heard of it till I heard the coroner's a, report. Yeah, it's incredible. Like, and and fentanyl's now being passed off as everything else that could be a white powder and is, you know, taking people out all over the place. It's very, very dangerous. The the truth about the actual real plant medicines, so like your psilocybin mushrooms, your your safe, prepared, grown, sterile mushrooms. You got to be careful with the mushrooms. They can have other bacteria in them. They can have other strains within them of other kinds of fungus that actually aren't by the name of the, the mushroom itself. And you can have a negative response to that. And you need to be very careful with that as well. I had an experience um, with mushrooms once where I, I had some, and for some reason they had, uh, knowing the source and knowing everything else, there was some contamination in one of them not in all of them, literally in one of them. And I had a severe uh, physical reaction to that. And so it looked like uh, six or seven hours of seizures. And so it's yeah. incredibly important to understand that uh, even in the plant medicines themselves, you have to know where you're getting them from, the source of them. And I think part of the, the positives of the standardization that can be taking place now is that we can source the different kinds of plants in a legal and safe way and that we need to take the nature of those precautions. And so it may, you know, seem more difficult or more onerous to have to follow those safety protocols and measures, but it's worth it. You need to, because this is about something to be positive in your life, not about something that dramatically hurts you. And the kinds of, of negatives, like when you say they, they didn't come out right and they were harmed, the kind of harm can be permanent especially if it's something being mixed with the originating plant medicines, right? So for instance, ayahuasca by itself uh, cannot be overdosed on. So ayahuasca itself has no overdose, but you can overdose the psyche in terms of the experience. But I mean like physical toxicity. You'll vomit and vomit and vomit and vomit and vomit, but you'll never die. It'll never happen. It'll never cause a fatal reaction. If you're a candidate for that ceremony, you can't have high blood pressure going into it. You can't have uh, heart problems, et cetera. So there's a long list of things that you you have to make sure that you're safe. But if you're in that safe category, you could have you know a small dose, a large dose of pure ayahuasca, and it it's not lethal. But if you add toei to it, the Brugmansia, angel trumpet vine, it can make it lethal. It can become, and it's a common admixture. And on the street, people will put in large amounts of that 10x, 20x, 100 times the appropriate amount to make it quote unquote stronger for people, right? So that they can sell a stronger, more potent substance. And so uh, you have to be very, very careful. And like you say, the best thing to do is to work with people that prepare their own medicines, that know the strength of them, that know how to work with them and have the nature of that expertise. Yeah, a couple of things come to my mind that I want to share, and that is if the person you're getting medicines from isn't an upstanding, respectable, well-managed adult, you should be very, very careful. In other words, if they show up with Mr. T gold chains around their neck and death's tattoos all over their body and, and their pants are hanging off their ass and they drive a car that looks like a whatever, um, be cautious and, and walk the other way. One other thing that people aren't aware of, uh, and I found this out, I knew this, but I got caught 
by accident one time. This is many, many years ago. Um, and this is earlier in my years when I was doing a lot of research on plant medicines because I was mapping out the, the territories of the psyche, the other dimensions. And I was, I used to live on airplanes for 25 years, Penny and I were moving all over the world, but I, I was teaching in Europe. I'd been on the road for several months. So sometimes if I had the right contacts, I could arrange to do a plant medicine ceremony when I was off because I would teach usually on the weekends and I would have the week off and we'd often be traveling to another city and then getting ready in the next city. But I just happened to be in this one large city for multiple weeks. And so I scheduled myself a ceremony. And that particular ceremony, I was using LSD. And I had studied LSD, but what a lot of people don't realize, and this is not just LSD, this is other drugs or medicines as well. But if you do, if you read the literature on LSD, you'll find that there are foods that interact with it. Some foods can weaken the effect of it. and Some foods can amplify the effect of it. And then if you mix LSD with other drugs, it magnifies the strength of any other drug multiple times usually. Well, what happened was, is I had was doing my preparation. And that day, my wife was had just come back from the organic butcher and there's a very good organic butcher where I was at that we'd used several times. And so to, to take some food with me for the later stage of the ceremony, I brought an apple and I brought a piece of smoked lamb sausage, all organic. And so this is about five hours into the ceremony and I hiked way off into the woods, miles off into the woods to be completely alone and just go into meditation for my ceremony. And then I got hungry in the later stage of the journey and I ate the apple and I was fine. But then I thought, well, I'm going to eat this sausage now. And within about three or four minutes of eating the sausage, all hell broke loose. I was having severe anxiety attacks. My sympathetic nervous system turned on so hard. I was sweating, like literally like I had just come out of a, a sweat lodge. I was, I thought I was going to die. I literally thought I was going to die. In fact, it was so bad. I had to call forth one of my power animals and say, please lead me to home. Cause I don't, I was so disoriented. I didn't even know where I was at. I couldn't remember how I got there. I was in really bad shape. I thought, holy shit, I'm going to die out here today. And the only thing I knew it could have been, it wasn't going to be an apple cause I'd used apples before. So I went back and started doing a bunch of research. And what I found out, it was that the chemicals that were created in the lamb sausage from the smoking had interacted with the LSD and created another chemical that damn near killed me. So the point that I'm trying to drive at here is you've got to be, this is why someone that's very skilled at the use of these medicines is very important because you can't just throw anything in your mouth on a lot of these medicines because you can get cross reactions and inner reactions that produces molecules that your body does not know what to do with. It can have severe effects on your physiology and your psyche. And I'm a very stable guy on journeys. I mean, you can talk to Kyle. I can, I can pretty much handle pretty much anything you can throw at me. But in this situation, I wasn't even on what I would consider a high dose, but I was in a situation where I thought, this is it, I'm going to die today. And it was only because I ate a piece of smoked organic lamb sausage and it interacted with that LSD 
and it damn near killed me. And thank God I had done a lot of work with power animals because one of my power animals is a black panther and it came out of my body, got in front of me and walked me. And I followed it just like I was a blind man. And I ended up on a main trail and all of a sudden two old men showed up on mountain bikes. I could barely talk, but I said, I knew the name of the town. I said, how do I get back to that town? And they say, six kilometers that way. You just keep walking on this trail. It'll take you right there. And I had no idea where I was at. But by the time I walked the six kilometers, I I'd regained enough consciousness to get my way home. But it, honestly, that could have killed somebody and it could have killed me. And it was something that I never expected. I didn't even know that the the smoking of a sausage could produce the chemicals that would do that until I had a reason to go. And it took me a few hours of research to actually find this information. And I could have been dead. Uh, so have you got any comments in that regard? Yeah, the first thing that you get taught in the Amazon are the appropriate foods to use and not use with all of the different plants, specifically for the reason that you're describing. So um, there's an ayahuasca safe diet and it's in now in the culture. And early on, I was really concerned that Westerners wouldn't follow that and other cultural, you know, people from other cultures wouldn't follow the ayahuasca safe diet. They would think it's not important, et cetera. And uh, luckily it actually got embraced, uh, you know, pretty well, um, all things considered kind of throughout the global community around ayahuasca, there was a real understanding of the importance of its safety. But for instance, you don't eat meats of, of high, heavy fats. There's a number of local meats that you don't eat, um, especially because they eat different kinds of seed pods and in their fat, then they store those chemicals. And then if you eat their fat, you get the chemicals that were stored in their fat and those counter interact with ayahuasca. And so some of the foods that the animals eat are actually uh, counterindicated. And so then you don't eat those kinds of foods, but um, predominantly you eat uh, very uh, small amounts of fish or chicken or vegetarian meals. You don't eat different kinds of large beans like lima beans. They can have um, a chemical in them that can create hypertension. Same thing with fermented foods, uh, large amounts of avocado as well. You have very reduced amounts of sugar. Even just a small amount of refined sugar can have a counterindication. You don't have any kind of alcohol. You don't mix any other kinds of substances with it. It's, uh, it's counterindicated to work to mix other kinds of plant medicines with it at that time. Um, you don't have hot peppers or spicy like capsicum filled peppers. You can have a, a negative reaction associated with that as well. And even sexual activity during before, during and after is considered prohibited for up to three days and in some cultures up to a week or even a month. And so there's an actual tremendous amount of restriction around food and diet so that you make sure you don't have any kinds of chemicals that create that reaction. And even on the days of ceremony, it's recommended to have a very light lunch or even skip lunch. Uh, but I think it's best to have a very light lunch so that by the time ceremony time comes in, you fully digested all of the food out of your stomach and you drink ayahuasca directly um, to the stomach. In the case of San Pedro mescaline based or Wachuma, it's known as uh, during the ceremonies, they go for sometimes 15 to 20, 24 hours even. And in those cases, obviously you need to eat something to keep going, but uh, we eat uh, dried fruits and nuts and uh, raw cacao and fruit. So dried fruits, fruit, fresh fruits and nuts and raw cacao during that time. And it uh, works really well for maintaining a, a light balance. But you think about uh, how, how, you know, 
light that is compared to like your typical, you know, lunch meal or something like that. Um, in terms of uh, psilocybin, there are uh, chemicals that can can intensify the experience and mixing it with other kinds of plants isn't always the best idea. So a lot of people talk about psilocybin and cannabis together. Uh, I think it's important to be careful about that mix. Anytime you're that was mixing one of the questions dis- I was going to ask you, actually. Yeah, mixing dissociatives. There's a there's a conflict of opinion out there because I've heard shaman that are pretty well knowledgeable that I would trust say, "Oh, it's fine to mix those two. And then I've heard other ones say you shouldn't mix those two. Um, whenever I see a conflict like that, if it's safe, I test it myself. But what I've found is that the spirit of the marijuana is so very different than the spirit of mushrooms that it's hard to really decide who's your teacher. And you get kind of like too many voices in your head. You don't really know who's on first to use a baseball term. Yeah, I was going to say it's a double dissociative. So you have one kind of dissociation taking place and another kind at the same time. I don't think it's uh, like one's right or wrong. I, I really shy away from those kinds of terms in and around these plants. I just think that if if it's dangerous, you shouldn't do it. And if it's beyond your skill level, you shouldn't do it. And if and you so, don't know, <laughs> don't do it. And until if you, you don't ask. know, you absolutely shouldn't do it. So yeah. uh, it depends on the severity of the reaction you're going to have and also the dose. Um, you know, so in terms of mixing them, uh, I always think when you start mixing the plant medicines together, that you have to know that there's a kind of synergy that's taking place, or there's a kind of antagonist that's taking place that makes it even harder on you. And that traditionally could be seen as a test. And maybe it's used traditionally for that kind of a purpose, but then that's a more advanced kind of practice and not something you do if you're not ready for that more advanced kind of practice. I think of it like free solo rock climbing. Like, you know, like it's not even, you know, you don't want to free solo a rock that you're going to fall off of, you know, but there are some people who can free solo things that I can't climb with ropes, but they can do it free solo. So they can go and do that, but that doesn't mean I can and I think in the plant medicines, there's a, a real uh, need for that level of scrutiny to understand what you're ready for. And that's not what a person who's had thousands of ceremonies of experience is ready for, you know, and or a different constitution in the body, a different reaction to the different kinds of medicines. You'll find that certain ones just are easier on your body than others. The, the nature of um, the way you metabolize it is going to be different. And the intercombinations of them will change also for you individually. And so I would listen to the, the, uh, you know, the different reports that people have and look for both what are the positives and what are the negatives that people talk about and make an informed decision. And then if I were ever going to try something in terms of a mix, I would start with very small doses so that I could see what the reaction is because sometimes small goes a long way. Sometimes Mm -hmm. small is actually a really big experience. And if I were ever going to do something new on those, those types of experiments, I think it's all about uh, meeting the plants in that way. And like you described, not knowing who's on first is a a common problem in the intermixing of plants. And ultimately we teach that you have to be the one to define that for the plants. You either have to make them get along. You have to uh, focus on one and turn that one into the teacher if that is hard to do, um, you know, then you need help from somebody else who can do that. And, you know, it can create tremendous confusion for a period of time. And that's another role of the, 
the facilitator or the shaman. For instance, like I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that in our ayahuasca, we can use over 20 plus plants. Well, we've also worked with those plants to make sure that there's a copacetic, friendly, balanced relationship between all of the different kinds of plant spirits that are found within the ayahuasca that we work with so that we don't have that issue. That being said, we find people that come who've just had a lots of other kinds of experiences. They're psychedelic um, practitioners, experimenters, psychonauts, et cetera, in their own right. And sometimes moving from one plant to another has, has left a state of being that is harder now to transition from. And so we see that a lot with people who've uh, taken mushrooms right before ayahuasca ceremonies, like, you know, two days before or three days before or one day before uh, coming on our retreats. And sometimes it's, they find it difficult to go into the visionary states. So I just think that we have to be very careful with those things. We need to be, uh, I think, as educated as possible. If we don't know, we need to ask. And the best thing is to not consume if we don't know. So we should never assume that we can eat something or we can take something and come out okay, especially because you said inside the body, what you took from the lamb sausage ended up combining with the LSD into another chemical or molecule. So now technically you're not really on LSD anymore. You're on this analog that we don't have any understanding about. And if you were asked going into that experience, hey, Paul, do you want to take this analog today? You would have said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I wouldn't you know, know what I think it that's was. a great lesson. Exactly. It's a great lesson. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 what shocked me is, is I, I typically won't eat any red meat since then. I, I, I don't eat red meat, not because of that, but because my body has changed through the years of spiritual practices. And the result is, is that when I eat any red meats, I, I often feel very depressed and I feel a lot of the sadness in the animal soul of all the death and all the um just all the abuse by human beings and and things like that so i go through quite a deep painful experience really um but i i at that time like i said this is probably i don't know 2006 or 7 it was quite a while ago um i had and I was I was in the later stages of the ceremony when the medicine was coming down, so it wasn't like I was really under a heavy influence, or I wouldn't have eaten it. Um, and I'd never had a reaction like that. And I knew it was organic lamb, and I knew it was butchered in humane ways, so I knew I was safe. And um, I thought it was, um, but I'd never had smoked meat. That was the difference. I'd never ever in a ceremony had I eaten smoked meat. And at the time, it just seemed like a nice thing, carries well, don't have to be refrigerated, it's all natural. And I got my ass handed back to me, and it made me extremely alert of how careful we have to be because even a guy that's done as much research into this stuff as I did got tricked by not just not knowing. Um, another thought that came up is... You know, right now, one of the things I've seen over and over again, too many times to count, is you get young men in their early warrior stage, and they go about plant medicines like it's a dick swinging contest. And, oh, how many grams of this or how many hits of that did you do? Oh, I can do more than that. Okay, let's do it, man. Let's see what happens. I, I'll take it. And the next thing you know, you got people that are completely and utterly fucked up because they were just way overdosing themselves for the completely wrong reasons. And I think 
any of you out there listening need to be very, very cautious about upping doses just to prove to your friends or your buddies that you can keep up with them because uh, you may not keep up with anything at all. You might find yourself totally dysfunctional for the rest of your life or killed because the next thing you know, someone's telling you they want to get into a car and go eat something somewhere. You're, you're dead. So these are all very, very legitimate considerations that you have to be conscious of. You're, we are not talking about things that you can play with. These are the, the, the power to heal and the power to enlighten and the power to connect reversed is the power to destroy, the power to push you deep into darkness, and the power to disconnect. So if you don't use them intelligently and spiritually, then the powers that create positive things turn against you, and you end up having to meet yourself in the choices that you've made through foolishness or unconsciousness. And that's unfortunately... The truth of how God works. The answer is always yes. You want to be an idiot? You have to take the responsibility for it. You want to do stupid shit? You got to take the responsibility for it. You do it intelligently? You've taken the responsibility for it. But love is a boomerang, and how you throw it is what comes back at you. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the show. I imagine you know that magnesium is one of the minerals that people in North America are the most efficient in, but it's an extremely important mineral to have in your diet regularly. And believe it or not, Bioptimizers has improved what was already well known to be the best magnesium formula out there called Magnesium Breakthrough. So I've got Wade Lightheart with me to explain what it is they've done to improve this already excellent formula. Wade, what is new about your new Mag Breakthrough formula? Well, it's called sucrosomial magnesium. So we have seven different types of magnesium in Magnesium Breakthrough because they're uptaken by different parts of the body. But a new type of magnesium has been created called sucrosomial. And what it shows in the research and science is that it's actually even more absorbable by the body, particularly inside of the brain, which is a big aspect uh, to enhance neurotransmitter formation, as well as ensuring the rest and relax response in the nervous system that a lot of people will take magnesium for. They find it, you know, clocks them down, helps them sleep better, allows for the relaxation of striated and smooth muscle tissue in the body, which creates an energetic relief. And so when we added sucrosomial, we were able to demonstrate inside our lab facility that we were able to get better improvements. Of course, we have a partnership with the Birch International University. We have some patents we're working on, uh, which will kind of relay some of these things. But sucrosomial was a no-brainer when we added to the formula, improved the results or improved the uptake. And the reports back from our testing team were like, wow, this we get more results with less caps. And that's always the goal for our company. That's excellent. I love it. I, I always say, and people have probably heard me say it before, I just am so amazed how you guys are constantly and always improving and working your best to not only make better products for us, but it doesn't seem to me that it gets more expensive as you make them better. So that's a real gift to the world. Thank you. This month, Bioptimizers have a special gift with purchase offer. When you buy a three-month supply of Magnesium Breakthrough, you not only save 25%, you also get a free gift of a bottle of Masszymes and a bottle of P3OM. 
And when you purchase a five-month supply of Magnesium Breakthrough, you save 30% and get free bottles of Masszymes, P3OM, and HLC. An incredible offer no matter how you slice it. To take advantage of this special offer now, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash living 4D. That's magbreakthrough.com forward slash living 4D. Enjoy. Hamilton, one thing that I've seen occur of late is people such as podcasters and some of their guests going from being pro-plant medicine users to all of a sudden flipping and saying that plant medicines expose one to evil spirits and are now encouraging others not to use them, telling them that they're dangerous and that they're satanic worship and all sorts of other crazy shit. Some of these people I've noticed also revert back into heavy dogmatic emphasis on Christian and other orthodox religious views, which is a classic indication of psychological stress. My analysis of this, and having personally known a couple of people in this camp, is that they overlook the fact that plant medicines properly grown, prepared, and used do not bring any evil to anyone whatsoever, but do amplify what is in the user's psyche so they can see what programming they need to work with and heal, where their own shadow material is at, and may come face-to-face with the reality of the dualistic nature of the human mind in general. To me, this kind of negative exposure of plant medicines is not only a glaring advertisement that such people are inadequately prepared, are using plant medicines for the wrong reasons or too much or too high of doses or don't understand the nature of the mind and the consequences of the medicines or are simply copping out on the real work the plant medicines and often meditation alone invites us to do. Hamilton, could you share your thoughts and any observations you have in this regard? Fundamentally, you have the plant medicines themselves. And then if you think about it, you have you. And you on plant medicines is a much more expanded version than you uh, in your normal daily life and in your normal consciousness or the states that you're most habituated to or most comfortable with. Now, plant medicines have this incredible way of awakening the imagination at the same time as awakening the analytical mind or what I call whole brain function. And what's locked in your psyche, locked in your mind, locked in how you've been taught to frame understandings, mythologies, which includes Judeo-Christian mythologies of heaven and hell and angels and demons, to polytheistic mythologies like Egyptian religions or Hindu religions with tens of thousands of deities, or the, the, uh, in the, uh, the demigods associated with Roman philosophy or Greek philosophy are all in there somewhere. If you've heard about it once in your life, it's in there. And if you haven't heard about it, and a lot of people have been worshiping it, praying it up and believing in it over thousands of years, it's in the collective consciousness. And you take plant medicines and you open up to what's in the collective consciousness. And you're going to experience one form or another connection with these different kinds of aspects of what's in our psyche and what's in the collective human conundrum or the collective uh, expression of consciousness itself. I personally think consciousness is filled with more of our collective beliefs than stars in the sky or grains of sand and the beaches. There is more light stuff in consciousness, uh, whether that be a positive kind of spirit or entity or a negative kind of spirit or entity over billions of humans, over 
tens of thousands of years of dreaming and talking and sharing stories, we have come up with this vast mythology and it's in there. And if you take something that's mind expanding, you're going to have to confront what's in your mind and what you've already been presented. So if you've ever been presented with Judeo-Christian understandings, you're going to have to deal with heaven and hell and everything associated with it. And if you have already been presented with Buddhic philosophies, you're going to have to deal with the needs of protections and different kinds of things that they call demons. But that doesn't mean that the plant medicine opened you up to those things and the plant medicine brought you to those things. On the contrary, life already opened you up to these different kinds of philosophies and the people around you already indoctrinated you in belief systems of duality, light and dark, good and bad. And the plant medicine is giving you an opportunity to fundamentally address that. Now, I think at that point, we need to discern where we're taking these plant medicines. If we're taking the plant medicines in a ceremony with people who worship those kinds of dark entities, love manipulation and power, you're going to be confronted with people literally invoking those kinds of energies to the ceremony itself. And that has nothing to do with the plant. That has to do with the person. If you're in a place where they're manipulating, where they're utilizing plant medicine for power trips, where they're using it for ego trips, that's the human doing that, not the plant medicine. That's the human taking something and doing that with their own mind. And you could open up to those situations. And that's why it's so important to find places based in integrity, why it's so important to find people that have really trained and know how to navigate these kinds of energies that you can ultimately confront, but to blame it on the plant medicine itself, like it has some agenda to introduce you to some kind of human mythological story and creation or beings from that creation, I personally think is absurd. I think it's misunderstanding the relationship between the people and the plant spirits. And if anything, humans are bringing that to the plants, not the plants are bringing that to the humans. And so I think it's really important to understand that we have to take responsibility for ourselves. We have to take responsibility for what we ingest. We have to take responsibility collectively for our belief systems and mythologies. And we need to start to to actually address it and confront it and move beyond it. In our ceremonies at Blue Morpho, we have a channel to release all darkness and negativity out of us, not coming from the plants, from us, from what we bring to the ceremonies. There's a channel to remove all of that all the time, continuously going so that it's not harmful and it's nothing that has to be quote unquote confronted. It's just a channel to remove it because it's not going to serve us anymore and it needs to go. There's a channel to bring medicine energies, healing energies, and positive spirits and helpful ones. That is continuous as well. So you have one that's taking out the negative with one that's bringing in the positive. There is a sanctuary of infinite love, support, and protection for us that we're in. That's our sacred container for the ceremony is this sanctuary that we create for each other in consciousness. And I teach everybody how to create that and hold it for each other so that we are all safe and protected in an infinite sense, like an absolute sense while we go through these experiences. Then we have the opportunity to see the shadow. We have the opportunity to make a decision about it, which is that we don't want to be controlled by it anymore. And we have the ability to move on from it. And I think the biggest thing that I hear from what you described is fear, where people have brought their fear to the ceremony, and now they want to ascribe their fear to the plant medicine itself, as if the plant medicine is somehow distorted or an expression of the nature of that fear. 
And I think that that's incredibly dangerous. We must not do that to the plant medicines. It's that's right. It's to disrespectful a, to the plant medicines. That's what disrespectful upsets me. to the plant medicines. Correct. It is literally disrespectful to them. We treat them as sacred allies that are of consciousness and incredibly smart. Like the mycelium yes. and, and and fungus networks of the planet are much smarter than the human networks. The much more advanced evolutionarily, like you said, the plant based networks. The forest networks are in, of an immense level of intelligence and symbiosis that they live within. And so to bring these human-related fears to the plants and blame the plants for having to confront ourselves is a myopic view of what's taking place. And it's externalizing the nature of the relationship to fear that we have. And the fact that people within that would go back to a philosophy of separation and duality proves the fact that they're still wrestling with the fear within themselves. Now, Amen. fear within the psyche is a really interesting phenomenon because the fear makes us create like squirting out of our imagination, these hybridized shapes of like beastly animals with teeth, these fetid creatures that want to uh, predate and destroy. And you mentioned the red meats and the meat industry. Well, what isn't more the nature of killing and destruction and pain and suffering than that. That's within us ourselves. And I've always said that humans have not addressed yet the fact that we are the apex predator species of this planet. And we have, we've brought ourselves into a notion of civilization without taking care of the number one most important phenomena, which is that we're predating on each other and we're predating yes. on each other with an institutionalized system of fear and that fear is pervasive and it's distorting the nature of our psychology. It's distorting the nature of our spirit. It's distorting how we represent ourselves in society individually and collectively. And we take that to plant medicine and then we start to blame that fear on other things that actually don't deserve the fear at all. I've learned that the darkness comes in the face of fear. It actually wants to come and take it from you if you want to let it go. It's like a magnet to it. You can let it all go. You talked about confronting what are considered in Judeo-Christian philosophy, the worst of the darkness, the worst of the negative spirits already. You described that in your own experiences and how much you could learn in a positive sense from those kinds of experiences. And so I think that this is an opportunity for people to get over that need to blame, confront the nature of fear itself. And the one thing and the only thing we need to do with fear is turn it off and turn on our love and turn on our light. And when we do that, all this stuff that people say uh, ultimately is represented as just a manifestation of their own doing and something that they needed to work through. Yeah, well, I'm, I agree with you 100%. And I brought it up because... I know of two very, very influential podcasters that have made this transition and unfortunately are spreading this fear. And what's happened from all their podcasts talking about is I've had a long string of emails and text messages from people all over the world asking my opinion on this. And because I know these people, um, <laughs> quite frankly, some people have reached out to me to say, do you think so-and-so has lost their mind because I can't believe the transition from who they used to be to who they're behaving like now. And, and you know, uh, you and I both have enough experience with people, with psychology, with medicines and life to know how this all plays out and how it gets twisted. And it's really, in my opinion, it's a cop-out on doing your own inner healing work and addressing the 
mythology that you were programmed with potentially as a child, but haven't really confronted in a state of rational consciousness to discern whether or not living that mythology is actually serving you. And I think the fear that they encountered is really just showing them what's happening in their unconscious 24 hours a day. But because they're not doing enough spiritual work without medicines to be in touch with their unconscious, then they don't realize that the medicines are only showing them what they need to look at so that they can begin to see how that's playing out in their lives. Because, you know, Jung said it best, until you meet your unconscious on the inside, it will meet you on the outside in the events of your life, and you will call it fate. So when we are in a life that's all fucked up, we can't seem to hold on to money, relationships, jobs, etc. Those are the, that's the programming, usually parental and societal playing itself through our life. But as long as we're not conscious of it, we always play the victim or the saboteur or the poor me or the, the, uh, you know, some sort of a negative expression or the child archetype. Somebody has to rescue me and fix me and make my life better. And I think that this is why plant medicines need to be part of a legitimate spiritual growth practice that extends itself between any ceremonies. Because if you think you can just use plant medicines as a spiritual practice and you're on, you're on very dangerous territory. That's not how they're meant to be used. You have, you, in my opinion, you have to ground yourself in a daily practice of managing your mind, keeping yourself heart centered and questioning your own beliefs because any belief worth living is worth questioning or it might destroy your life and, and, and other people's lives and you'll blame it on somebody else. So I just wanted to bring that up with you in particular because with your experience, I'm sure you've seen this kind of stuff. And I just, it breaks my heart because it's, it's, it's just so disrespectful to the humble, loving, beautiful spirit that are in proper plant medicines that are grown and managed and raised and used with love and respect. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I mean, again, I go back to who's using the plants and why and understand that there's an influence between the practitioners and the plants themselves. And so a practitioner in the room who's a negative person who's utilizing the plants to try to control others or are literally possessed in their own right with their own kind of demonic influences, that's not the plants doing that. That's the individual. That's the person. And we can't intermix that. And we have to be very careful about that. In the traditional societies, there's a tremendous culture of medicine practitioners and then these other kind of practitioners. And the other kinds of ones don't use plant medicines for the purpose of healing and growth. They use different kinds of plants and different kinds of psychedelics for the purpose of manipulation and power games. And we cannot do that with the plants. It's a kind of disrespect to the plants to use them in that way. We have to be aware of those kinds of practitioners, not get caught up with them, not fall into the traps of those kinds of people so that then we don't have those kinds of experiences and then misunderstand the nature of the plants. Early on in my career, when I first came down here, some of the people I met were like that. 
And I ended up having really negative experiences with them, some of them pushing me almost to the edge of losing my life. And I didn't know better, and I learned from it. And I actually had to go back to the plants to receive the healing that I needed from the negative person. And we've all been taught that there are good people and that there are bad people. And there are good people and bad people in and around these plants, just like there are good people creating medicines and there are other kinds of people, bad people selling you know, dangerous chemicals on the street. And you have yep. to discern, you have to be aware, and you need to understand the people that you're working with. And if you do that, then you're not going to have the experience of the plants representing this kind of darkness and negativity. On the contrary, you're going to see, just like you said, that the plants are going to come forward and they're going to help you see what you're carrying within your psyche. And they're going to give you an opportunity to let that go and actually make a decision about it instead of being like Jung said, like you said, in your unconscious driving you in some kind of pattern that externally represents in a negativity. And so the plants are giving you an opportunity to grow. And in the cultures I grew up in, in these practices, you had to actually go back to the plants. You had to beg for pure medicine. You had to humble. You had to be humble within yourself and your soul to move past that kind of egoic blockage and return yourself to the absolute light. And then you would purge and you would release all of the, the negative stuff that anybody else had actually done to you. And the plants would be what was the supportive element and the healing element in that relationship? Yeah. One of the things that, that I feel is important to share is this, in this regard, one of your first screening tests to who you should get medicines from or do ceremony with is that if they don't give medicines to anybody for money or let anybody into a ceremony for money, that means they're in this to make money. And therefore, they're already trading plant medicines as a commodity that takes the spiritual component completely out of it. And what I mean by that is it's one thing to pay money to someone like Hamilton that has the skill to really do the work properly and to pay for the resources and the help that it takes to do a proper ceremony and, and who values his time than it is to go to some place, hey, God, you got to come over to my friend. I got this friend that does these ceremonies, man. And then you walk in the door, you put three or four or five or 600 bucks in his hand. And next thing you know, you're laying on the floor with 20 people who've all come in from coffee shops and gyms and wherever. And nobody's been screened. No one's been evaluated for drug history, drug use, current medical drug use, diet, Right away, right there, you're already you're already setting yourself up for a date with the devil, uh, and I mean the devil of your own ignorance. And so, be warned that if you can walk into any plant medicine ceremony and just pay money without someone very carefully analyzing you for readiness, for dose, for medicine type, and for whether or not you're really ready for a ceremony like that, you're, you're probably in a place with people that don't know how to hold space, don't know how to create sacred space. And you're probably going to be surrounded with people that are going to have some very negative, often extremely scary experiences while you're in the room under the influence of a medicine. And years ago, I used to attend group ceremonies because I was wanting to learn more about the nature of a group ceremony. And, and some of the things I saw go on in these group ceremonies just made me have no interest in ever doing group ceremonies unless it was someone with someone like you or 
people that I know and trust that are that are safe to be with in a group setting. Um, so these are very, very important considerations. Yeah, I would just say that the larger the group, the more skill you have to have to be able to manage it. And yes. it takes a tremendous amount of skill to be able to manage three people, then five people, then 10, then 20 people. And that there's no room for, uh, you know, a mistake in those kinds of situations. And so if you're going to be in a group kind of setting, this isn't a, a gathering, you know, where there are no stakes on the line. This, On the contrary, this is very high stakes. It's your well-being. And you want to understand that the people that you're working with really have that skill set and capacity. I remember during my training, when I first had to work with one or two people, and then I had to work with four or five people, and then I had to work with 10 or 15 people, and the numbers kept getting bigger, how it just got exponentially harder, and how we had to have so much more skill to be able to actually address that and deal with it. And the number of techniques and tools that we use in an individual ceremony to be able to handle 15 to 25 people is literally in the hundreds. If you just sat down after the ceremony and said, okay, what kind of skills were you using? And you just started to list them. There would be literally hundreds of skills that we learned along the way to be able to do that. And in those cases, you can have a really incredible experience. And we've proven it year after year with the groups and the people that come through. But you also have to understand the amount of training and skill that goes into that. And so, you know, Take that very seriously when you think about where you're going to go and the kinds of experiences you're going to have. Who are the facilitators? What kind of training and experience do they have? Like, for instance, when I was first working, I was an apprentice and I was a translator for people who were already masters who had a tremendous amount of experience in our lineage. They had already 20 years of practice under their, their belt. And I had to go through the entirety of my training, graduate, be considered what they call a maestro, which means a teacher level before I was ever handled, handed a bottle of ayahuasca and said, you're allowed to now go hold a ceremony on your own. And so that would be the equivalent of like a multiple degree black belt in a kind of martial arts that you had to go through all of that training before it was allowed. And even then it was work with one or two people and get your bearings. And then from there, grow and grow and grow. And we call that a maturation phase. And your maturation phase after apprenticeship can last 10, 15, 20, even 30 years to be able to have the level of experience necessary to effectively and safely handle larger groups of people. Yes. Now with the next questions here that I've got, we've already addressed uh, a fair bit of this. So, you know, one of them was what are the pros and cons of doing plant medicines on your own or with friends? I think we've covered a lot of that. Uh, you know, I think, the, the key thing I would share there is one, what do you know about your friend? Um, can you handle the relationship with them without plant medicines or any kind of mind altering substances? Because if you have a hard time with them already, then you know what happens when Pandora's box opens up. Um, so that's just a common sense one right there. Um, if a friend is someone that makes you feel safer, you have a deep connection to, if you're willing to go to hell with that person because you know that you're safer with them than without them, you're probably going to be safe in a ceremony as long as it's properly run. That's my opinion. Um, who you shouldn't do a plant medicine ceremony with is anybody that doesn't meet the criteria that we've been talking about or isn't managing themselves or is copping out on their life or is running from their life. 
Uh, you want to add anything to those right there, Hamilton? Yeah, I think that, you know, people's personalities are magnified through these experiences. And so how someone deals with stress is a very important quality to look for when you're thinking about uh, who you want to do this with. And so you could have a great friend, but if they don't deal with stress well and they get very stressed in the ceremony, you're going to have a cute situation where you're going to have to you know, handle it for you and for them. And I hear of this all the time where somebody just has a massive breakdown and they're incapable of really handling themselves. In those situations, you, know, you want to focus on your heart and you want to help them calm down and get them focused on their heart. But you want to first think up to yourself, like, do I want to be in a potentially very stressful situation with this person? And if the answer to that is no, then I don't think you should, you know, explore plant medicines with them. Or if you're going to do it where somebody else has the responsibility of the ceremony, so they can be the facilitator taking care of your friend, and you can have the good experience on your own. Yes. The next one, we, you and I talked about a fair bit in our preparation, and I don't think we need to go too deep on it other than making it clear, and that is the issue of picking up entities in plant medicine ceremonies because I've had a long string of people that have picked up entities that have really messed their lives up and their health quite bad um, in plant medicine ceremonies, and, and some of them uh, run at well-known uh, well-marketed places around the world. I won't damage any credibility uh, or I don't want to point fingers, but I will say that you, you need to be very careful because there's a number of places out there that are kind of be, it's coming hip and vogue to go to these high-end hotels and, you know, do medicine ceremonies with people wearing leather pants and hanging out with, you know, the movie star types and whatever. Um, but that doesn't always necessarily mean that you're safe. It just means that you paid more money to have a potentially challenging experience. And one of the things that's very important to realize is that there is actually good research now showing that when you take a plant medicine, uh, your energy field opens and, it, and it, it, it can quite expand as well. But because the medicine is actually facilitating the opening of the chakras, which is a means of connecting you to nature typically, but it's chemically induced by the medicine. You can't just shut it off. You can't, unless you have a lot of skill, you cannot close your energy field in your chakras to protect yourself against entities. So what's happening is when you're in a medicine ceremony, whoever you're with, your field opens. So if, if Hamilton and I are here doing a ceremony together, his field's going to open and my field's going to open and our fields are going to overlap. So whatever information's in Hamilton's field is immediately accessible to my field. We're sharing at the level of the conscious, the unconscious, and the superconscious. So in a nutshell, whoever I'm with, I get, I get the experience of their stability, their instability, their wisdom, and their fear, the, the good, and the not so good. And so part of being in ceremony with people is working together to help each other through whatever rises up, but preferably being with someone that you know will work with you if they're in trouble or they're having a, a, a some kind of a crisis. But if you're just in a group ceremony with a bunch of people you don't know, any number of these people can be carrying entities, and a lot of people are. And so entities like to trade up. 
you know, if an entity wants a healthier, fitter body to go exert revenge on somebody, they will trade up to whatever body they can get into that they the entity feels is more suitable as a vehicle for carrying out what it is that they want to do. So it's a very, very important thing because if you're not going into a ceremony where the space is, is properly prepared, because if, if a space is properly prepared, negative entities don't like to be there. It's very repelling to them. So they, they, they will leave the body quite often. They will jump out of the ceremony before they enter a sacred space because they can't handle the, the amount of love and the amount of stability there. So that's a, an important issue. Before I forget, I, I did create, um, Hamilton, did I ever get that program to you? I meant to. I don't know if I got around to it. I haven't received it yet, but I am very interested in it. Okay, I, I'll, uh, um, I'll ask Penny to get that to you. Um, uh, it's called Are You Possessed? Sorry, I'm just writing a note or I'll forget. So I have, a, a, I think, a seven-and-a-half-hour audio program I did with Kedrich Olson, who is an entity protection specialist. He's on many shows on Gaia TV. He's somebody I got to connect you with, Hamilton. This guy's the real deal like you. Um, and so Kedrich and I did a seven and a half hour audio program called Are You Possessed, which covers, it's probably the most comprehensive expose of entity possession, signs and symptoms, things you can do about it, etc. And there is a podcast I did with Kedrich Olson that gives you the first two and a half hours of the program for free. So if you just look the name Kedrich, K-A-E-D, R-I-C-H-O-L-S-E-N. It's the podcast is really about Norse mythology and runes and things like that, but but we do go quite heavily into entities um, because that is one of his specialties and it's something that a lot of people don't realize is affecting them. So the 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 key point I'm driving at here is when you're on the medicines, your field is open, so you're very permeable, just like your ego, your default mode network filtration system breaks down under the influence of the medicine and the unconscious rises up into the conscious. When you're on the medicines, you're open and there's a natural flow of energy and information between people that unless you're very skilled, you won't be able to overpower the medicines. And the research that I looked at, which was done using the BioWell technology where it measures your energy field and your chakras and your glands and organs and biological systems, showed that typically on, a, on all the people they studied, that the energy field stays open for two weeks after a ceremony, So you're, which means you got to be very careful about who you go around. You don't want to be around negative people that are depressed or, or uh, who have a negative disposition about life. You need to make sure that you're around people that are safe to be around. In other words, if they're safe to be in a medicine ceremony with, then they're probably safe to be around because it takes about two weeks for the energy field to close up. And that energy field is just like, you know, on Star Trek, uh, Captain Kirk used to tell Scotty to raise the shields. Your energy field is an energetic protection that cocoons you from negative energies. And if it's working, it's regulated at the unconscious level and you, you, your, your unconscious is much smarter than your conscious mind anyhow, uh, you know, vastly smarter. So the body protects itself, the psyche protects itself. But with the effect of the medicine, you cannot protect yourself against entities unless, you, unless you're a very skilled 
practitioner and have worked with subtle energies and know how your chakras work and how to manipulate your own field. So uh, it's, it's very, very important. And, and there's also things that I do in screening and preparing people to make sure that if there's an entity that I deal with it before they're in a ceremony. Um, because you haven't seen a shit show till you've seen a negative entity come out of people in a ceremony. And I've seen it without medicines where it scared the hell out of people in healing ceremonies that I've conducted. And I've seen it in medicine ceremonies as well. Not that I was running, just that I happened to be at. And, and, you know, there's been times where I had to get involved because people there that were running the ceremonies didn't have a clue how to handle a situation like that. So is there any comments you want to throw in on that, Hamilton? Yeah, I think that there's some uh, basic, you know, safety things to do. First of all, if you're in a ceremony and uh, there's, a transference of entity and you're aware of it, don't go back to that ceremony. Okay. The ceremony is not being held right. It's not being held in a safe way. So if you're, if you're on a a retreat and there's four ceremonies or five or six or whatever, and you see that in the ceremony entities are leaving or people are talking about entities crossing over and going from one person to another, we consider that to be uh, a sign that the ceremony isn't being held in an integral container. Um, The other piece of it is, if for any reason you find that you feel like you're being taken over by a kind, any kind of spirit in the ceremony ever, all you have to do is go deep into your heart. You have to go really, really deep into your heart. It's like a move into your heart and you call on as much love and as much divinity as you possibly can to release that entity to the infinite or to release the, the entity out of the ceremony and ask for help. So you can always say to somebody, like, I, f- I feel like something's in me and it needs to come out and you're going to get it out with love. And I think that that's uh, it, like, it's not just kind of like the love feeling. It's a, it's a really tremendous explosion of love and, and intense energy in the ceremony that opens up the light field and expels those kinds of energies and then ask for help from the practitioners and they should know how to be able to handle it. And if they don't, and then continue to seek some kind of support. But those things aren't supposed to happen in ceremony. You'll hear in the culture that people will walk around like a badge of honor that things like that are happening. And uh, we just consider it to be really unskilled practice. And you have to be able to hold a container that knows how to manage different kinds of spirit energies and entities. And it's just kind of fundamental to, uh, to the learning process. And I will just close that commentary with a comment. If you're one of these people that does not believe that negative entities are real, you're a goddamn fool. I hate to be so direct, but I've been in this business for almost 40 years and I have seen so many people seriously screwed up by entities. I've extracted more out of people's bodies than I can even count. I've encountered them and they're as real to say an entity's not real would be to say that a movie and its effects on you are not real or that your beliefs are not real or that energies that you cannot see are not real. You can't see an x-ray and it can burn you. There's a lot of things that you cannot see that can kill you and can manipulate you. And all you got to do is look at the psyops going around worldwide right now and look into the research. There's a great documentary out there right now called Enjoy the Show. You should all look for it. It's by a CIA op, uh, operative who retired and wanted to warn people of what was going on 
and how the CIA was involved in controlling people's minds on a mass scale. And it's highly, highly informative. And there's many others I could point out. But the point is, if you are someone that doesn't believe in entities, you're probably carrying one. <laughs> that's what I would say. <laughs> and that's one of their defenses is to make you not believe in them. So don't think this stuff is just a bunch of silliness. It's very, very real. And um, in my program, Are You Possessed? I give you plenty of stories that are very real, and I could give you plenty of phone numbers to verify it. So if you want to learn, look for the podcast with Kedrich Olson. You'll get your first two and a half hours free. And if you want the rest, you can buy the audio program, which is, again, seven and a half hours. Hamilton, how do you suggest someone qualify a journey leader, guide, or shaman? Now, obviously, we've given a lot of information, but if you just said, here's three or four key criteria they should meet, what would your, uh, what would your statement in that regard be? Real ceremonial leaders should be masters of their craft, and so they need to have a long history of practice, or they need to be certified or graduated from a lineage or a group that you know knows how to be able to train them. Uh, you need to also think not just what their their you know whole practice has been, but the recent practice, because we all go through things, and sometimes uh, life gets difficult and circumstances change for different kinds of facilitators. So things can also change and your desire to maybe work with them could change at that point. So you also want to see testimonials and things like that of the recent results that people are getting from working with them. And then uh, do as much research as you possibly can just in general to see if you vibe and are positive with their message and the way that they express themselves, because that's what you're going to get from them in ceremony and beyond on an energetic level. So if you really feel connected to them in that way and you feel like they can do something positive for you. And then the final thing is to make sure that uh, you know your intentions and what you want from ceremony is something that they can deliver or you'll be disappointed. And so I think if you follow those uh, steps, you have the best chance of aligning your intentions and interests and finding someone who has the professional background to be able to offer a really positive and a really good experience. I would just throw in this. When you're investigating someone to take you through a ceremony, ask yourself this one question. Do I feel safe enough with this person to trust them with my life? If you don't have that, and it doesn't take, it's not a conscious thought where you say, well, you know, I like their jewelry or the car they drive or they seem like a nice guy or a woman, it's go into your heart, connect to that person and be very present with them and say, do I feel safe enough to expose the deepest, darkest parts of myself that I may not even know were there and trust this person to guide me to the light and to the stability and to the truth of who and what I really am knowing that I may not be able to be rational and conscious and may not even realize what I'm acting out at the time. If you feel safe with that person and you trust your life with them, you're probably in a good place to be. But if you have any insecurity whatsoever, then you should listen carefully to that insecurity. Hi, everybody. 
Did you know that Symbiotica now has a new excellent plant-based protein for you? Symbiotica's plant-based protein is a scientifically backed protein powder that fuels your body with essential vitamins and minerals, whole food nutrients, and a full range of amino acids. It features three complete proteins, raw greens, fiber, pre- and probiotics, digestive enzymes, and adaptogenic mushrooms. Crafted with the highest quality of organic ingredients, Symbiotica's plant-based protein is made for all lifestyles and is trusted and used by the world's top athletes. This product is ideal for those living a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle or people like me that like to give their body a rest from flesh foods and detox once in a while while being able to still get enough protein to meet your needs even if you're athletic. For those of you wanting to deepen your meditation, enhance your subtle energy perception and voyances such as clairvoyance, try taking two to three weeks off of flesh foods and use Symbiotica's plant-based protein supplement, drink lots of clean water, sauna regularly, avoid recreational drugs, and you'll be amazed at what happens. You'll feel like you've been super tuned to great spirit in the cosmos and your body will love you too. Symbiotica's plant-based protein boosts energy and recovery, promotes gut health, and offers you 20 grams of protein per scoop. To get your Symbiotica plant-based protein, go to bit.ly forward slash symbiotica L number four D. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Symbiotica L four D. To get your discount, use the promo code L four D fifteen for fifteen percent off. That may be case sensitive, so make it all caps. That's capital L number four capital D fifteen for fifteen off Symbiotica's excellent plant-based protein powder. Hamilton, during our preparation for the podcast today, we spoke of several important steps for preparation. Let's share them here, and we can each add anything we feel may be supportive to what the other shares. So um, some of them we've talked about. I put uh, a number of things on the list. Intention, I think, is number one. I think it's important to realize what intention is. God most commonly is perceived by people that orient God with love as unconditional love. I think most people out there would agree that if God is God, that God would be the highest form of love, which would be the most unconditional love. By definition, and that which has no conditions is a perpetual yes. If you want to jump off a building and kill yourself, God says yes. That's not an experience that I need to have again. I've done it many times, but if you really want to do that, I'm with you. Remember, God cannot die, so there is no fear of death in God. Therefore, unconditional love in scientific terms is pure potential. The word intention means to take the power of God, which is unconditional, and put it into tension. Just like you cannot pull a car out of the ditch without tension on the rope or the chain, you cannot move God consciousness into a vehicle of expression without an intention. And if you don't have a consciously stated intention that you use to center yourself and harmonize yourself through prayer and the initiation of the ceremony, then your intention becomes whatever is your unconscious urge, drive, or that of the group. So the point I'm making is the function of an intention is that it takes the pure potential of God 
which has the potential for good and evil. For those of you Christians that need a lesson on that, go to the Bible, open it to Isaiah 45, 7, which says, I create the light and the dark, good and evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. By definition, anything that's created has to come from God. So if it's here and you've got a name for it, it comes from God. God is willing to experience everything without which it would not know itself, and you are an agent of God's experience, like a neuron in a network. We're all God's workers. And God says yes to evil and yes to good and yes to everything in between. So the function of an intention is to channel the energy, the potential, the level of consciousness, the level of love, the level of awareness, and therefore steer the boat in the direction that you want to go once the medicine is working. So without an intention, you're really just like opening yourself to anything that your unconscious wants to throw at you or anything that's in the unconscious of the group. And that's why prayer is so important because prayer takes the intention. If you couple the prayer with your open heart, your genuine love and your genuine interest for growth, spiritual development, being the best person you can be and bringing your best into the world, then the prayer adds energy and puts the right vibration and further harmonizes you to the intention. So whenever I initiate a ceremony for myself or anybody else, I'm always very clear on what everybody's intentions are. We all read them out loud to each other. And one of the things that I do that is important is I listen carefully to each person's intention. If the intention is written such that it focuses on a lack of or a negative, if, for example, I want to get rid of my back pain, that is not an effective intention because you are fortifying the belief that you have back pain and it's something that you're asking the medicine to get rid of. So the test that I develop for all my students and all the people I do healing work with is you do what I call the Grand Canyon test. You go stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. If you say, hello, the Grand Canyon will say, hello, hello, hello. If you say, I want to lose my back pain, it will say, I want to lose my back pain. I want to lose my back pain. I want to lose my back pain. And the key verb is wanting. I want to lose weight. You will get wanting. God takes you at your word. And I mean at your word. The answer is yes. So if you want to get rid of back pain, then you enter ceremony, you say, I have, I choose to be free of all pain. My spine is healthy and I live in love fully and I'm willing to learn how to manage myself so that I am more optimized and more healthy every day. I don't reinforce a negative with an intention. I don't state what I want because then that's the verb that keeps you wanting. So if you stand at the end of the Grand Canyon and say, I have chosen to be free of all pain and I manage myself in positive, healthy ways to contribute to the world. The Grand Canyon will give you, I choose to be free of back pain, manage myself healthy with good intention to support the world. And that's what you're going to get.
So if your intention does not harmonize to being the person that you choose to be, because that's what your process is for, is to initiate you in deeper into the commitment to be that person and live as that person, then your intention can actually turn out to be a negative prayer and you can be very confused as to why you thought you had such a good intention going into a ceremony but ended up having a very challenging experience. So I'll just stop there, Hamilton. You you add or share whatever you want instead of me just reading off the whole list. <laughs> yeah, intention is just the, the core key element to how you program and code the plants and speak to the plants to let them know what you want and also to the universe itself. And so the intention is going to give a guiding direction and a guiding light and a guiding principle to everything that's going to manifest after and so uh, the clarity of the intention, the positivity behind it, the choice of words that you use are all uh, the most important part of that ceremony. And then also, if you're having difficulty putting it into words, but you can frame it in your mind, like you understand the idea, but you don't have the words for it, express it from your heart. You don't always have to have a, a specific word if you don't know how to form it, because you can really mean something and know it and invite the medicine to go to that deep meaning within yourself and it will still function in the exact same way. So if you're feeling like you're just, you know, not as articulate or you have difficulty framing that, you can write it down and try and improve it, but even then if it's still not exactly right, words sometimes can't give the nuance to what we really mean. And so take it as deep as you can into your heart, sit with it and invite the medicine to go literally to that place and know you at that level and your intention will be there pure and uh, it'll be fulfilled through the ceremony. The other thing too you can do in a situation like that is you can draw or paint what you feel. And painting is a very big part of my ceremonial process. It's a, it's a part of the preparation process and I use I won't go into how I do it because it's, it's a it's a quite an elaborate setup with very specific guidelines. But we can paint our intention, and and we don't necessarily may not have the words, but if we just empty ourselves and allow ourselves to paint or draw with watercolor pens or even pencils or whatever you've got, then you are actually imprinting your intention onto a piece of paper, which then becomes an antenna. All shape moves energy. That's what the whole principle of biogeometry is. A simple way to say that, if you blow air through a flute, you get the sound a flute makes, but the same air going through a trombone makes a very different sound because the shape has transformed how the energy resonates and vibrates. So your intention is like the shape or the container, and the art actually acts just like a musical instrument and each color and each shape or image produces a vibration and it's got your intention in it. So it acts as a subtle energy transformer or a symbolic gateway to the dimension that your intention exists in. And so you can use that. The other thing I wanted to add that I forgot to say is when you put pure potential or unconditional love into tension, what comes out of it is called spirit. The instant that you have an intention, potential becomes spirit. If your intention is negative, then you have negative expressions of spirit. That's why we have the words evil spirits. 
And if your intention is positive and heart-centered, then you will have spirits that resonate with that vibration. No evil spirit is going to show up when your intention is to love and to heal and to grow. And that's what you're harmonized with because they don't like those kinds of energy. There's nothing for them to feed on there. They actually feed on what they are, which is fear, insecurity, jealousy, resent, manipulation, control, illusion. So the more of that we carry in us, the more they come to feed off of us. Um, so anyhow, that was that. Uh, do you want to throw in some more there so I don't just hog the whole floor? No, that's, comp that's comprehensive. I think I think we've covered intention. Yeah, no, I, I meant with any of the other suggestions for preparing. Oh, I, I agree. I just agree with all of the that. I think that uh, you know preparation is is getting about. It's getting focused. It's getting clear. It's understanding your reasons. It's setting intention. It's expressing yourself in the tools that you can use. And uh, I love the idea that intention and unconditional love combined creates the spirit. And so we want to be attuned to the spirits that we're creating and understand that we're there for what we call medicine, which are positively transformational energies that are healing in their nature. Yes. The other thing I use as a criteria when people want to do ceremonies with me, uh, it just, by the way, for those of you listening, one, I don't do very many ceremonies. I often keep people in therapy for up to two years to get them the self-management skills and mental-emotional self-management skills so that when they do go into ceremony, I know that they have the skills already rooted in their psyche so I don't end up having to try to teach them two years worth of therapy in five minutes while they're freaking out because they're um, in a typical shamanic state. I don't think that's a, a smart thing to do, so I'm very, very, very careful and no, I don't just do ceremonies for people. And to me, it's a very serious, well-crafted process that takes a lot of my time and devotion. And it's a hell of a lot of responsibility. And I've put a lot of time and energy into my learning and mastering the craft. And, um, and that's not what I do for a living. It's part of what I do. But I reserve that for very special cases where I know that that is um, an option that can be very helpful. Um, but I, I don't want to participate in, in personally, I have a deep connection to the medicines and the last thing I'd ever want is to have the spirits or the soul oversouls of those medicines deem me as, um, disrespectful because I couldn't live with myself doing that. So the point that I'm leading to here is the next point is I say to people before they want to do a ceremony, I say, are you ready to die? Because for a real ceremony, you have to be ready to let go of something. Your beliefs about God might have to die. Your beliefs about your judgments of your parents might have to die. Your beliefs about almost anything may have to die for you to become the person the medicine's inviting you to be. And as I've already highlighted, you could die. People do die. I've heard of people dying even in well-run ceremonies. Sometimes great spirit comes to get you and there's nobody that can intervene. It's just your time to go. And so I say, if you're not ready to die at some level or die, then it means you're not ready for that experience. And, and I think that's an important litmus test because 
it stops people from playing around with medicines. You know, if, for example, if I was a fighter jet pilot and I flew an F-18 or something that can do Mach 2 plus and pull G-forces that would stop your heart and stop you from breathing, and you said, would you take me for a ride and show me what this thing will do? I might say, are you ready to die? Because when I pull XGs and your heart might stop and your lungs might be under so much pressure you can't breathe, you might then freak out and scream your head off and cry and bitch and say, why did you not tell me about that before you took me in this fighter jet? And so we, as the pilots of the jet, the, the leaders of the ceremony have to make sure you're ready for the G-forces and the reality of a deep look at yourself, which can be more scary than a fighter jet. <laughs> Someone else is usually flying the jet. So you can take that to any level you want to, but I'll just say the higher the dose, the more you need to ask that question. Am I ready to die today? Because if I don't have that willingness to go that deep into God and into myself, then I'm really not I either need to talk to the medicine carrier about reducing the dose, or I need to wait till I'm ready for that level of commitment. Diet suggestions we've talked about, the art, use of art I've talked about. One technique that I use, and very successfully, and it's helped me a lot of times, is tarot. Now, I don't have time to give you a tarot lesson, but tarot is a series of 78 archetypes. The most important ones for preparation for a ceremony are the major arcana. If you do a tarot draw, you can get the book Universal Tarot by Beatrix Quintana. It's the best. It tells you what all the symbols mean. It's simple. It's clear. And it's quite accurate in my observation from years of study and practice. Before you do a, go into a ceremony, if you're thinking about, I want to go do a medicine ceremony with anybody, whether it be Hamilton or anybody else, I would recommend you ask well, you might not have the skill to ask your soul, but I would do at least a three-card draw, one for the beginning of the ceremony, one for the process, and one for the conclusion of the ceremony. I like a six-card draw. Whenever I'm doing ceremonies, I have people do a six-card draw that takes the span of the medicine, divides it into six. So if you're using mushrooms, typically a six-hour ceremony, each of those six cards will tell me what's going to happen in that hour. And I direct them with that intention to draw the cards. So if you pull a three of swords, which shows a heart with three swords through it, I'd use the writer weight deck because it's a lot easier to interpret. It means you're probably going to go through an opportunity to heal some kind of severe heartbreak. If you pull the 16 card tower, it shows the top of a building being blown off and people flying out. It almost always means that your ego is going to get destroyed in the process. You got to be ready to lose your ego, which is a form of death. If you pull 13 death, it means something's you're going to have to transform something or you're going to have to go through some kind of a letting go process. It could be a rebirthing experience. It could be an experience of dying in a past life, but you need to be ready for it. So without going through all the cards, if you use the writer weight deck, the images are very realistic to life experiences, but a lot of the decks are so convoluted with crystals and flowers and wands and magical mystical shit you look at the card you wouldn't have a clue what the hell it's telling you about what you're about to experience but the writer waits very realistic for example any five card means you're going to go through some kind of challenging process so i don't care if it's five of wands cups 
pentacles, or swords. Whenever I see a five, it means I have to earn my money that day. And when you look at your readings, and then you can even just look them up in the book, it starts to give you a picture. And if it, what if it's your soul is telling you, because that's who's drawing the cards, your unconscious is a big part of your soul, and you read those readings and you say, wow, that looks pretty scary, then you got a choice. You either cut the dose right now, or you say, maybe I should work on these issues in my life now, get a better handle on them, and then when I've shown some adult responsibility and willing to, to take responsibility for the situations that the cards are showing me, then I'm, I can do a redraw in a month or two when I'm ready to, to up-level and go to the next level of my growth and development. You can also use mantras, so healing mantras, sound instruments, rattles, drums, and other instruments, including tuning forks, can all harmonize you, but mantras like Om Mani Padni Hom, Om, um, Ram, 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 Rama, Rama, Ram, Ram to me, Ram to you, Ram to, Ram is a creator god in Hinduism. Um, any mantra that brings you into your center, whenever you're singing, you're changing the vibrational resonance through your whole body. All the water molecules in your body become entrained by that mantra. That brings the vibration of your body into resonance with the intention of the mantra. And it actually can have a tremendous stabilizing force. And there's been many times in ceremonies where I've been dealing with some heavy, heavy stuff and I would begin to chant a mantra that would work as a form of centering, heart centering and stabilizing and shifting my field so that I was more able to deal with what I was working through. Gemstones can be very useful. They can change the energy of the environment. Um, if you want to keep something very helpful with you, a large chunk of obsidian is a great tool for pulling. It'll pull a lot of entities out of people's bodies. So should you be in a ceremony and feel like something's in you, you can hold that obsidian in your left hand, which is your feminine hand, unless you're a left-handed person, then it would be the right hand. And you can hold your intention to draw the entity out and think of it just like using a vacuum and just rub it where you feel the entity in your body and hold the intention of pulling it out and then visualize your hand like a giant magnet working right through the stone, pull it out and either run it under some sage smoke or under water or put it near fire, but water and sage smoke are various effective and easy and that will pull the entity out of the body and out of the stone in most cases. There are entities that are too strong for that, but a lot of them will come out with that. And then, of course, we talked about um, creating safe space. Hamilton, I'll stop there. Is there anything else you want to add or, or, or you think we've touched on it? No, I think that's uh, pretty solid. I think around the safe space is that remember that you have a responsibility to the space as well. It's not just the practitioners that are there. The space around you is your sacred space. And the more divine you can make it, the more centered in love you can make it. Call on and invoke the different kinds of beings and entities, the positive ones that represent uh, love and light and medicine and healing and holding of the space and balance and harmony and equilibrium for yourself and for everybody. Uh, it'll help everyone in the room. So 
you know, when you when you go there, think of that place as your temple. Think of it as a sanctuary for yourself and for everybody else. And um, you know, call in as much positive energy as you can before you start the ceremony. Great, good stuff. So Hamilton, we're we're moving along pretty good here. We've got a few more stops to conclude. So I'll be as efficient as I can. Um, to get through the rest of this outline before this podcast is uh, something that we should have put into a university program, which wouldn't be a bad idea at the end of the day, but it would probably get all screwed up there, as you know. Um, When it comes to how much of a dose and how often one should uh, do a ceremony or how often someone should be allowed into ceremony, I know you have some thoughts and guidelines. I have a list there. You want to go ahead and share what you think is important with regard to to dosage and frequency of ceremony? Yeah, the dose is simple. Uh, You want to have a dose that gets you into fully into the experience. And once you're fully into the experience, it's no longer about the dose. And so when you're using a purgative medicine, you're going to typically purge some of it out anyway. And so more is not more. It's about having something that gets you fully into the experience Uh, I personally hear the doses that are going through the communities now, and they sound like very large doses to me and people shrug them off like they're not that large of a dose. And so I think start smaller and work your way up. And when it's, when it gets strong enough that, you know, you're fully in and you're, you're having a transcendental experience, you're having a visionary experience, you're in an altered state for three, four five hours. That is a big enough dose to be transformative. And so I think you work your way up to the dose. Um, if you're in a ceremony and you feel like someone's going to give you a dose because they're the facilitator and you don't feel like it's appropriate for you, it's always appropriate for you to say no. I don't care if they have a tradition where you can't do that. If I got served too, what I thought was too large of a dose of ayahuasca for any reason, even if I didn't know and I just felt that way, I wouldn't drink all of it. Don't consume anything that you don't feel 100% confident in consuming. Uh, The other thing to realize is that the potency is not easy to see from the outside. So sometimes very small amounts of things are very, very potent. So there can be plant medicines, you know, by weight where you need a much smaller amount than what you do with somebody else's plant medicine that's half the strength or a quarter of the strength. So, you know, ask what's the, the typical strength of the medicines and see how the person responds to to that idea of the relative strength of of what they serve. And the last part is if you find yourself having had a large dose and it is a big experience, always remember that that's what you signed up for when you consumed it. We believe that if you ingested it, you take responsibility for the fact that you ingested it. So you have to get, you know, really strong and the courage and everything to have that experience and ultimately have it be a positive one. And the facilitators are there to help support you and guide you so that you can do that. In terms of frequency, you have to really watch within yourself. The traditional medicines have a frequency of use. Um, and, So typically with, for instance, ayahuasca, it's three or four ceremonies is considered a treatment. After that, you must integrate. That integration could take anywhere from uh, a month to six months and during maybe even a year, a year and a half. So during that period of time, you're actually working with the resonant effects of the, the ceremonies that you did. And so I think when you think 
about whether it's the right time, you need to think, okay, I had an experience. Have I integrated that experience? And now have I, through integrating that experience, am I ready for the next experience? And if the answer is yes, then it would be appropriate for you to consider doing plant medicine uh, ceremonies again. In my practice, they're more frequent than in a lot of practices, but I don't think that that's safe and responsible for everybody. And so um, taking that into consideration, you know, really depending on the medicine, you want to have a nice amount of time between sessions that you do. So sometimes you're going to do two, three, four in a row, like within a week or eight days or something like that. And then you need months before you go and do it again. Give yourself that period of time. Having that gap is really important. And if you have um, longer series of ceremonies, like four to eight ceremonies in a short period of time, you need that integration time to be even longer. Yes. One of the things that I want to highlight here that's very important, and I'm going to start by telling a true story about Paul Cech. <laughs> when I was, I think, 15, there was a rock concert in the town I grew up in. I grew up in a small town on Vancouver Island, British Columbia. And a bunch of my buddies were heavy into drinking. And at that time, you know, keeping up with your buddies is important when you're a teenager. And so uh, we were each tasked with showing up with a bottle of hard alcohol, which then became a drinking contest. And I wasn't much of a drinker as a kid. I never really was attracted to alcohol. But in this instance, I wanted to be part of the gang. So I showed up and I had, you know, a bottle of, uh, I think I had Southern Comfort and one guy had Drambuie and another guy had Bailey's and we proceeded to drink all that alcohol. And about the last thing I remember was walking into the rock concert with them. And the next thing I remember was waking up in jail, in a jail cell, surrounded by drunks laying in vomit. And I was shocked that one, I'd never been in jail before. So that was an interesting one too. I was really shocked about what was going to happen when my parents found out. But the point I'm making is, is I drank so much alcohol, I went unconscious and I didn't even know what happened. And I had to go ask my friends, how did I end up in jail? And they proceeded to tell me that when the band went on break, I decided that I would go up on stage and continue the concert. So I went up and started playing the guitar, one of the guitars, and then got on the drum set. And then the cops came and got me and threw me in jail um, because they figured out quite quickly I was extremely drunk. Why is that a relevant story? Because if you take too big of a dose <clears throat> and it pushes you into a state of unconsciousness, you cannot learn anything in the ceremony. You cannot defend yourself against anything in the ceremony. You're a play toy for sexual abusers. You're a play toy for entities. You're a play toy for anybody. But the worst thing is you've just wasted medicine. So the key thing about dose is if you're not sure, remember the words less is more. You can always come back and, and do more next time, but you'll have the confidence of knowing how much you can handle what the experience was like. And that gives you sort of a sense of measure of you know, one gram, two grams, three grams. But if you go from two grams of mushrooms to six, you're probably going to end up metaphorically 
in a jail cell surrounded by drunks because you didn't realize how powerful that was. And like Hamilton said, the quality of something like a mushroom, even though they've got the same name, the, the, the power difference is radical. I mean, I've had freshly grown mushrooms and might have taken six grams and it felt like I was on three grams. And then I've got other mushrooms specifically grown by shaman that are very, very potent and, and three grams of them must be powerful as six grams of other mushrooms. So you, you got to be careful. My warning is if you go unconscious, you're no longer in a medicinal ceremony. You are now basically unconscious and you're leaving yourself very open to a lot of X factors that could be very, very dangerous and you won't have learned anything and you might develop a habit that only fortifies your habit of copping out of your responsibility to yourself, your relationships, and your life. And then remember all of our comments about mixing medicines uh, as well. Hamilton, we spoke of several important steps for preparing our forest ceremony, um, but I'd like to share some tips on how to initiate a ceremony. Um, so if we could give the listeners some tips, we've already talked about invocation. We've talked about things like tarot draws. We've talked about uh, chanting. We've talked about singing, creating the right vibration. Um, some of the things that, that I wrote down, I'll run through real quick just to be efficient. And you can add to them. Um, prepare your sacred space. Be sure there's not going to be any unwanted intrusions from people, noise, um, or anything that can make people scared or anxious. For example, if your next door neighbor likes to fire their pistol or rifle off, and, and you know, some of you that might sound crazy, but I got a guy like two properties from me that has a firing range on his property. And sometimes he's out there with semi-automatic weapons and they can be quite loud. So something like that could scare the hell out of someone if you don't let them know. If you hear that, it's just the neighbor. So you got to be thinking about these things. And you've also got to be considerate that people can go through quite a lot of emotional release. I've people seen people scream their head off for hours in a ceremony. I mean, and your neighbors can call the cops. They can think you're raping somebody. They don't know. They start using their imagination. So you definitely need to make sure that the environment is safe. And uh, if you've got neighbors close by, I would highly recommend you go to them and say, we're doing a healing ceremony. I would never tell them you're doing plant medicines unless you know them very well. And if there's any unusual noises, it's just part of the healing ceremony. Don't worry. Everything's under control. Or you can end up with the cops at your door. Um, and I don't think you need me to go beyond that. Um, cell phones should always be turned off. Um, I had a <laughs> shocking experience that I'd never had to deal with in my life. I was doing a ceremony with a young man who had some stuff to work through. And let's just say that in the middle of the ceremony, um, he got up, I had walked away to go to the toilet or something. I can't remember, but I came back and he was on the phone with his girlfriend being extremely rude to his girlfriend. So the dark side of him was coming out. And so I had to get the phone away from him, which wasn't easy. 
And then I hid the damn thing and he managed to find it. Next thing you know, he called his mother and was being extremely rude to his mother as well. So I learned the lesson the hard way. We don't have live phones anywhere in a ceremony. And I've also had many cases where people get up and they start texting and uh, emailing in the middle of a ceremony, which, you know, I used to think people were smarter than that. And I didn't need to have to say that. I would say, leave your phones by the door or whatever. But next thing you know, you got people doing crazy stuff. When people are in the state that they're in in a ceremony, I don't think using a phone or being even connected to that energy is a good idea, which Hamilton already spoke about. Clothing should be all natural fiber and loose fitting. A change of clothing is ideal. I've shit myself multiple times on ayahuasca. Um, you can vomit. Uh, you know, I, I would recommend you have a clean change of clothing before you start a real plant medicine ceremony and that it's natural fibers. Why? Because any synthetic fiber distorts your energy field as your field moves through it. So you can actually get confusing information coming back into your own field, not realizing your clothes are distorting your field. There's a huge difference between natural fiber and synthetic fiber clothing. So search for something that's organic cotton, wool, hemp, um, any of the natural fibers. Um, there, you know, there's a few of them out there. I, I mostly wear uh, hemp and cotton myself, um, but there's silk, there's all sorts of things, but it should be natural fiber. So your energy field breathes because that can, you can be exquisitely sensitive to energy when you're in a, a medicine ceremony, especially with shamanic doses. And you can feel like you've been wrapped in plastic if you're wearing synthetic clothing and you don't want any tight fitting clothing. Um, when women are in ceremonies, I recommend they do not wear bras for a simple reason. Bra straps are very restrictive to the rib cage. So what happens is if people can't take a deep breath, it's harder for them to process their emotions. And women these days wear bra straps that are so damn tight, you practically have to be a weightlifter to undo the clips on the damn things. So the rule is, if it's leaving a mark on your skin at the end of the day when you're taking it off, you're wearing it too tight. It's disrupting your breathing. I won't go into the ramifications of that, but I have a podcast with Sid Singer, S-I-D Singer, and it's all about bras and the risks that they cause and the health challenges they cause, and I get into that and to the breathing. But I don't want women wearing bras in a ceremony unless they're loose enough that you that when the ceremony is over, there will be no marks on their body because it disrupts breathing and therefore emotional processing. Bringing your art and any of the other things we talked about is a good idea. If you go to the biogeometry website, B-I-O-G-E-O-M-E-T-R-Y dot C-A, they have an a pendant there called an L90, which will protect you against negative entities and, and, and negative influences. Designed to do that, highly recommend it. It's only about 40 or 50 bucks. Having high quality water on hand is important. Being clear on what can and cannot be eaten is important. Having a, a barf bowl to vomit in is important because many people will suddenly have the need to purge and they won't have time to say, is there a, something I can vomit in or where's the toilet? So whenever we do ceremonies around 
in my presence, we have a great big bowl that'll probably hold five gallons that five or six people at once can all vomit in. And sometimes that happens because one starts the process and everyone says, well, it's safe to vomit. Now I'm going to do that too. So you want to make sure there's a safe place to catch vomit. Um, again, have a clearly outlined intention. I talked about the Grand Canyon tests. Uh, before I move on, uh, Hamilton, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that's pretty comprehensive. Uh, you know, understand the typical effects of the different kinds of substances or plant medicines that you'd be using and make sure you just have all the different things that would work with that. Have the right foods, have the right liquids, uh, have the right, you know, blankets and things to be comfortable. Always think comfort. So always think, how are you going to be able to be really comfortable when you're in an altered state? And, uh, you know, just pre-plan for that because you don't want to be in the experience having to try to find things. You want everything laid out in a really easy uh, to reach, really easy to use means. And so think about that when you plan the space, how like, oh, if I need a blanket right now, if I need a pillow right now, if somebody needs help right now, make sure there's enough walkways between everybody. Make sure yes. there's, you know, individual that two people could walk through because one person might be guiding another person who doesn't have the same motor functions anymore. So, you know, think about how is this going to look once the plant medicines have kicked in? It's very different than how it looks before then. And just set up the space so that it's ready for when the plant medicines are in effect. And then it makes the management of the space so much easier. Yeah, one thing I want to add that we haven't talked about, and Hamilton, I'm quite confident you'll agree with what I'm about to say. Once you initiate a ceremony, you should not leave the sacred space. That's extremely important. And I'll give you an example. I was conducting a ceremony many years ago with multiple people, and I was busy helping one person, and all of a sudden I turned around and one of the group was gone. There was the son of one of the people I was doing the ceremonial work with. Now, I was put in a situation because I was running the ceremony by myself. I had one assistant with me who went looking around the property. The property I was on at the time was 10 acres, but there was very a very steep embankment, like so steep you could barely walk down, and it was like several hundred feet down. So I was worried about where this guy was. And then, it, and he didn't show up for two or three hours. And so a couple of hours at least. And, and so his father got really nervous and said, Paul, would you please go find him? I'm really nervous. I can't relax because I'm worried he's going to hurt himself out there. And, and this person, the, the, the son's quite a wild man. So, he, you know, his dad was <laughs> based on experience. Fortunately, I'm a remote viewer. So I remote viewed and I found him and I could see what he was doing. He's a world-class athlete, this guy, and he was jumping between boulders, but it wasn't more than five or six feet. And I could, and then I could look out the window and see where he was way down the trail that went down to a lake where I was at. And so I knew he was safe, but when he came back, I gave him a good little talking to about leaving the ceremony without telling me. Um, the point I'm making is when people are in altered states, they can think that they're supermen. They can think they can fly. They can think they can do all sorts of stuff. So it's extremely important if you're doing ceremony with friends or however you're doing it, whether you're listening to us or not, that you make an agreement that you do not leave 
Everybody needs to know that each other person is safe. And if someone does leave and they're not accounted for, somebody that's responsible should go look for them. Uh, I had a sitter there helping me, but she wasn't in shape to go climbing down practically cliffs and foraging through 10 acres of brush to find this guy. So I had to remote view and um, I watched enough to know that he was safe. So any comments in that regard, Hamilton? Yeah, you can't leave the ceremonial area until the ceremony is <laughs> formally over. Like period. Right. Unless, unless like, you're like, no. Unless you're like this guy who sneaks out the door without telling you, then you no, got yourself right. a pickle. You're not allowed. Like that's, yeah. that's fundamentally just just not part of the safety protocol. You stay in a defined area. That area could be larger or smaller, especially if you're outside. But you agree beforehand with everybody what the defined area for the ceremony is. And then that's the sacred location for that ceremony. And when you're picking a location, really look at it to make sure that it's safe along the perimeters and stuff and think, you know, if we're in an altered state and we need to have some kind of an emergency intervention, you know, is this the kind of environment we would pick and we would want for that kind of a scenario? And so I've heard of, of just situations like this where people run off and people disappear and, you know, have to be found later on. And um, in some cases, what seemed like incredibly dangerous scenarios. And I just think to myself that that could have been avoided with a little bit more pre-planning about what can happen when people get into these experiences. But most importantly, is that everyone promises the ceremonial leader that they're going to stay and that there are uh, people there to be able to help enforce that and make sure it's like that even if somebody wants to go. Yeah. And remember, everyone... When you're in a ceremony, you're in a state of altered consciousness. So what's said rationally at the beginning of a ceremony doesn't necessarily hold when you're under the influence of the medicines. So the key thing is everyone has to, you know, in the military, when I was a, a soldier, they had a buddy system. You were always assigned a buddy. So it was your buddy's uh, important task to always know where you were at. Because in a battlefield, people get their heads blown off and disappear out of the blue. and so. We're each assigned a buddy so that our job in battlefield training is to know where our buddy is at so that if they can't be accounted for, somebody's responsible for knowing, oh, he went over there to have a piss in the woods or whatever. So my point is rational agreement doesn't always play out. That's why you have to work together as a team in a ceremony so that everyone's looking out for each other so that someone doesn't slip through the cracks like I just described. Uh, I, you know, one minute he was there, I turned around, he was gone, but I, you know, I was on a 10 acre property. So it's not like I can just walk out the backyard and find him sitting by the car. And it was a dangerous property. So uh, fortunately I have the skills to travel without traveling. And, and I knew he was safe and he was safe, but it was certainly scary for his dad. And it was irritating for me because he knew better. Um, but some people have a real uh, resent of any kind of authority. And even when they're with someone like me that they trust and want to be with, they're, one of their unconscious tendencies is to reject authority. And so you can have people that do it just to prove to you that they can um, go above your request.
Hi, everybody. I'm super excited to tell you about Organifi Gold Chocolate, something that is very tasty and that my kids love. Organifi Gold Chocolate is a superfood hot chocolate healthy enough to drink every day. In fact, multiple times a day if you want. In fact, unlike most chocolate drinks that stimulate you and may disrupt your sleep if consumed after about four in the afternoon, my kids drink it right before bed. And unlike chocolate in general, it actually helps them sleep. Organifi Gold Chocolate doesn't include blood sugar spiking ingredients like other hot chocolate alternatives, leaving you feeling good about indulging in this healthy chocolate beverage. It was formulated to deliver the same amazing benefits as Organifi Gold. Some of the key benefits of Organifi Chocolate Gold, or gold chocolate, is that it has 10 superfoods for rest and relaxation. 100% USD organic certified, tastes delicious in warm water and amazing with milk or milk alternatives, promotes and supports relaxation so you can fall asleep with ease, supports a better night's rest so you wake up refreshed, and promotes a healthier response to stress and gives calming support. As you know, what most people reach for when they want something super tasty and enjoyable is generally not healthy, but that's not the case with Organifi Gold Chocolate, which is USDA certified organic, certified gluten-free, and certified glyphosate residue-free, which is very important, dairy-free, which is great for guys like me, soya-free, which is very important, vegan, non-GMO, and clinically proven ingredients, 100% organic whole food, which means... It's great for everyone. Save 20% on your purchase of Organifi Gold Chocolate by using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20. That's check 20 on checkout. Go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash check 20. And again, for your 20% Living 40 discount, use the code check 20 in all caps. Enjoy Organifi Gold Chocolate. We're getting close to the end here, but we, we've got some important stuff to share. Tips for navigating a ceremony experience. Stay heart-centered. Hamilton talked about that. We've both talked about that. Whenever you're in a state of fear, concern, or having to deal with something challenging in yourself, bring your consciousness within your heart and speak to your soul and say, Dear soul, show me the love that I'm not seeing. So if you're seeing yourself being abused or you're seeing yourself being the abuser, ask your soul to show you the love that you're not seeing, or you can get swept away in the negativity of it and go into a huge guilt trip and shame and lose your rational capacity to, because you got to remember life is a lot more complicated than we realize. Some of us take on soul contracts specifically to give people the experiences that they need to have because they have been doing these kinds of things to other people. And so we don't really know the big plan. But if we ask our soul to show us the love and we orient ourselves toward what is the love and what is the blessing in that situation, then higher consciousness or our higher self can show us what we can't see and it often puts things in a completely different perspective and can help calm and center of you. Um, remember to breathe through your belly. Whenever you're feeling stress in a ceremony or you're getting nervous or scared, bring your attention to your belly. Put one hand over your belly button and breathe through your nose and fill your belly before you fill your chest. Breathing through your nose will activate the paras parasympathetic nervous system in the right brain and it'll have a calming effect on you. If you're far out of your body, 
wiggle your toes. That activates your root chakra, which is the lowest frequency. It's connected to the earth element. It'll pull the soul back into the body. So remember the flying rules. Wiggle your toes and breathe through your nose. That's your, how you control your wings. Have a barf bowl handy. Be sure there's someone there that's a sitter that can watch over you in case there's an emergency. Um, we talk about keeping people contained. Techniques for staying grounded. If you're getting too far out, touch the grass or the earth. One thing you can do that's very helpful is get on your hands and knees and put your forehead on the dirt or the grass. That will help ground you. If you take some grass off the ground, tear some grass out and chew it. The juices of the grass have a grounding effect on people. I've used it very successfully. Another thing that can help ground you is a pinch of salt. Just take a pinch of salt and throw it in your mouth. That will have a strong grounding effect on your body. If someone's got a sage bundle, they can clear you again. Smoking or vaporizing some tobacco can ground you. If someone knows how to use tuning forks effectively, you can use the root chakra tuning fork. If you've got a tuning fork tuned to the root chakra, that will help. Or you could use what's called an ultimate ohm or even lower frequencies than the root chakra will help ground you. You can go into your mantra or chant. You can spray or pour water on somebody when they're too far out of themselves and the water will pull them right back into their body in most cases, just like someone flipped a switch. <laughs> it's pretty wild. My soul taught me a lot of these techniques. And then the use of essential oils and flower essences, such as Bach flower rescue remedy or an essential oil that has a low frequency like an earth tone or a root, something made of roots. Um, if you go to EssentialOilWizardry.com and speak to Dr. Nick or the people there and ask what essential oils would be best to wear or use in a healing medicine ceremony to ground somebody, there will be several oils. Um, Hamilton, do you want to add anything to that for navigating the experience? Uh, yeah, going into it, understand that often people see sacred geometry in their visions and that there's actually right. a whole realm of visions beyond that. So if you're seeing the sacred geometry, take it in and know that you can focus through it as if you're seeing like a, a infinite horizon point and you just keep focusing literally through it. Pretty soon the sacred geometry will be around you and uh, you can move beyond that onset state. And often that's the place where people move into the ecstatic and uh, feel actually really calm and get into a mind state that is uh, really pleasurable and is really um, fundamentally amazing. Like incredible bliss. So just know that you can uh, navigate that way. You can navigate with pure intention. So if you find yourself in the ceremony and you want to go someplace or you want to view something or you want to connect with somebody, you do it through pure intention. You start to focus through the third eye on the, uh, the person or the place that you want to go to. And you just gently hold it there until you feel yourself traveling and then ultimately appear in that place where you feel like the vision opens up and you're in that location. Uh, you can navigate as well through the invocation of different kinds of entities that can be your guide or different kinds of spirit guides that can be your guide. So if you have spirit guides, you know how to work with them, invoke them, and they can help guide you and take you. Uh, it's common in visionary scenarios to have those kinds of experiences as well. In terms of emotional states, navigating the emotional states, uh, let them flow, not express them. So let the energy sitting behind them flow. If you need them to flow out and express them, 
for the purpose of healing, do that. Let them come to their natural resolution and just let the energies that flow through the emotional states through the body, it'll help you stay more centered. Uh, in terms of the mental navigation, if you feel like the medicines are working on your mind, relax from the mind. Don't try to use the mind as the tool during that period of time to navigate the ceremony because you'll be having different brainwave states and you'll be having different visionary experiences that can seem sometimes chaotic or going through kind of thought patterns that may not be the most supportive of you at that time, literally like a disc defragging or um, a filtering process taking place. The neural network's lighting up and the medicine is going into that part. So go to the heart or imagine someplace beautiful, um, invoke a kind of spirit guide that could be supportive of you through that experience and just let the mind go for that period of time. It might be five, 10, 15, 20 minutes of kind of mental discomfort. And you don't want to get wrapped up into everything you're thinking during that period of time because you'll put too much emphasis in that. And then the final thing is to always know that another grounding point is the heart center and you just start to breathe into it. So as Paul's saying, breathe through the nose and focus on the heart center as the chest expands, focus on that heart light right there. And that's also a real, really powerful grounding element. Excellent. So our next discussion is post-ceremony integration. So uh, what a journey participant should expect tomorrow and for the next two or three months after a real ceremony. Um, so I'll throw a couple things in Hamilton and you, you know, I want to be a fairly efficient just because we've been on this for quite a while. Um, you know, obviously you and I could do this for hours and hours cause there's that much to it. So I'll just hit a few things. I don't think I'll have time to hit everything on my list here. One of the most important things I want to point out, because I've seen this get people in a lot of trouble, people come out of a ceremony, they have amazing, profound experiences. But the next thing you know, they're telling their mothers, their brother, their sister, the next door neighbor. And then the next day, people are saying this person's turned into a hippie. They've lost their mind. Um, I've known people to have their parents end up having them locked up in psych wards after talking about doing ceremonies and, the, and meeting angels and spirit guides. So you've got to be really careful about how far your experience is from the level of the belief structure that the people around you exist in is. In other words, um, you know, if your parents are quite Christian, they're probably going to think everything you're doing is devil worship. And they're probably going to not only be deeply concerned, but they might investigate to see who it was you did this with and try to get them put in jail. So there's a real responsibility you know, there's an old saying, he who knows doesn't talk and he who talks doesn't know. There's certain things that aren't people aren't ready to know about or hear because they can't interpret them properly or their framework of interpretation is so rigid that it, whatever your great experience was had to have been dark or evil or some kind of trickery in their opinion. So control your childhood need to bubble everything out to make sure that before you talk about these things that it can be handled respectfully by the people that are hearing it and that you are careful not to say things that are too evolved for other people or you can just open yourself to a world of hurt after you've just gone through a beautiful ceremony now when i'm working with people, I'm interviewing them. So I, I'm right in touch with them 
usually the next day, or I ask them to send me a report about the, how they're doing, or I'll call them and check in on them. So typically with well-run ceremonies, someone's going to be checking in with you usually the next day or soon after to make sure that, you know, your feet on ground, you're not, you know, disintegrating instead of reintegrating. If you're having a hard time, some of the kinds of things that indicate you need professional help to integrate is derealization, where you find yourself floating out of your body or experiencing yourself in other dimensions when you shouldn't be, such as driving a car or using a knife or a chainsaw or something like that, or going to work running power tools or working as a nurse and forgetting what you have in the syringe because you just did ayahuasca yesterday and you're so blissed out you don't remember what you're doing. Um, so if you're having things that you can tell are still indicators that you're not in your normal waking conscious mind, then you should get help to integrate if you don't know what to do. Again, doing art can be very helpful for the integration. Journaling can be very helpful. Tarot guidance can be useful. Intelligent for doctor management, uh, which most of you listening to my podcast know what that is. If you don't, look at my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, second edition. It's right in the beginning of the book, or look for my uh, audio or ebook, The Last Four Doctors You'll Ever Need, How to Get Healthy Now. There's various types of meditations that can be very helpful for integration. Reaffirming your journey initiation and giving thanks that it has been done and seeing it as complete can be very helpful. Avoiding relationships that are challenging is extremely important. Those are the things that I just off the top of my head think are important. The most important thing I think is to decide consciously if you need skilled help to integrate, I've seen a lot of people come out of ceremonies um, and be very, very still in the journey state for a good two weeks after. And there's been cases where I've had to direct them to healers or guides to help them um, either because they couldn't afford my help or were too far away um, and needed somebody that they could find. My point is these things do happen and each person's different. And I'll give you an example of that. Everybody's capacity for our detoxification systems to clear medicine varies wildly. Um, within one family, um, you can have as much as a 1000% difference in the capacity for the liver to clear alcohol out of the same family members. If you read the uh, book Biochemical Individuality by Roger, I think it's Wilson. Anyhow, Biochemical Individuality shows you uh, all the research on this, and, and it's very, very wild. I, I was doing a ceremony uh, many years ago where for this ceremony, each person got one tablespoon of San Pedro cactus preparation I'd put together, which really was just enough to kind of open the gates a little bit. I mean, it, it, it was a low, low, low dose. But there was one guy in the ceremony who actually was quite high for three days and ended up reaching out to me for help. And I had no idea because of, I think, the 30 people in the training program, 
most of them complained that they didn't feel anything. They actually kept asking me for more. I said, no, not, not in this class. It's not the right thing to do. But this one guy who must have just had a really backed up liver was literally blown almost into a, like a shamanic experience for three days. So there's an example where you, you have to realize not everybody reacts to the medicine the same. And there's a lot of internal factors, such as their unique biochemistry, as Hamilton mentioned earlier, but also how much, how much, how healthy their detoxification pathways are. And some people can't clear these medicines out of their body very quickly. So they can have multiple days where they're actually in a much deeper state than almost anyone else would have ever expected. I think I covered that, what I wanted to share there, Hamilton. Is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, I think afterwards you want to watch your mental and emotional states and yeah. you want to get plenty of rest and hydration. Part of flushing the system and helping the liver and other organs detox from everything that's come up in the ceremony, as well as the alkaloids that are in the plants themselves can be supported by uh, just hydration and rest. You want to be able to have time to have rest. You want to be able to have time to process for a day or two or three after the ceremony before you have to do any kind of activity with high level of concentration that's required for safety, especially if it's around work. Uh, during that period of time, Epsom salt baths are really great if you can have an opportunity to take them. Anything that's a relaxing meditation or behavior is really supportive. To wake up in the morning in the transition from waking up and going to sleep at night, to check in with your intention and just use that intention in that, that quiet time to be able to connect to the plant medicine spirit, to the plant medicines themselves, can continue the work of that intention going forward. And then to be really gentle with yourself and really kind with yourself because you've shaken up and you've started to open a process that can bring up different kinds of energies that for you might be difficult to process. And so just practice self-care, practice self-love and self-compassion during that period of time. Know that you've created a transitional state yourself, so continue to take responsibility for that state. And if you need to get professional help during that time, look for it. It's out there. It can be received. Uh, we have integration programs as well to be able to support people in coaching programs through the integration period of time. Know that it can take anywhere from two weeks to a month to regain a new normal. And during that period of time, you want incremental steps of success and incremental improvements so that that new normal is uh, incredible for you and made that ceremony really purposeful. Yeah, I'll, I'll just throw in two saunas are good for helping speed the detoxification process to get stuff out of your system. And anybody that feels like they're still not in their body would be very well served to either use the coldest showers they can take or put some water, cold water in a bathtub and, and put a bunch of ice in it, go buy a couple bags of ice from a, a gas station and get it you know, at least down to about, I would recommend 47 degrees to f 44 degrees. Most people won't like it if it gets below that. But even one or two minutes in ice cold water like that can really have a powerful effect of closing your energy field and centering you in your body. Um, so those are a couple of also useful tips. Uh, as Hamilton said, hydrating very well is also important. Hamilton, one of the biggest downfalls among people using plant medicines and attending plant medicine ceremonies is avoiding the responsibility of taking action on what the plant medicines taught them. In other words, what you get is this great realization, I shouldn't do this, I need to be more loving. But then they 
as you well know, often end up going back to being the same person they ever were, which I think is not a good idea. So do you have any tips that you would like to share just on how people can can take what the medicine taught them and bring it into a grounded, legitimate practice so it's not just uh, getting stoned out of your mind and then going back to being the village idiot you used to be? Yeah, I think what's really important is to understand first that you don't want to make massive life-changing decisions in the like the the ceremony itself or the integration phase. So right. if you have like a big change that you hear that in ceremony that you need to make, give it a week and you see if it's still that same massive big change. And then really big changes are step-by-step changes in life anyway. So understand that there's going to be literally moments every single day to be able to work towards those transformations. Big changes inside yourself are easy to make, but this is about like career decisions, uh, parenting decisions, relationship decisions, et cetera, right? So work with it on a daily basis. Again, the self-care I think is the most important thing and break it down into tiny little bits that aren't overwhelming because sometimes it just seems like it's going to be too hard. Like, how do I become more loving? How would I actually work with that? If we took becoming more loving as the example, we're going to have to balance brain with heart energy. And as we do that, there's going to be a new neural network. The new neural network is going to require balancing of the left and right brain hemispheres and creating whole brain function. That's going to require intention, meditation, and uh, some step-by-step processes. As you go through that, your diet's going to probably want to change. Probably the foods that you're eating are supporting a dissociation between the brain and the heart. So nature of diet's going to change. It's going to take a while for you to be able to make those kinds of changes. As that takes place, thought patterns are going to change as well as diet changes. Relationships are going to start to change. You want to work on those little by little. And so you can see from a process like that, it might take two or three months. At the end of three months, you're going to say, wow, I'm much more loving than where I was before. I was told in ceremony I needed to be more loving. I didn't know that it was going to take 500 or 1,000 or 1,500 micro changes to be able to actually make that all happen. So that's why you want to keep working with your intentions, make those changes as you can so it's not overwhelming, and ultimately then manifest those big changes. And that's like the the real transformation that you want from that uh, ceremony that you participated in. Yeah, I'll just add to, you alluded to it, Hamilton, but I'm going to expand just a little bit. People have wild premonitions, wild, deep realizations in ceremonies, and they can be anything from, I need to divorce my wife. I'm I'm never going to be compatible with her to, I should sell my business or quit my job or uh, go get a dragon tattooed on my face to piercing to, you know, a lot of wild stuff comes to people in ceremony. And, and, and that's fine, but the, the, there's a transition from that state back into a rational state. And that can take as long as the integration process. So what I want to share with you, and I've had many of these types of things happen to me where I thought, okay, I've got to do this now. But I am wise enough and mature enough and old enough to know, let's just sit on that for a week or two before I announce to everybody that I'm <laughs> giving the Institute away or something. And, and you know, just give yourself time to get your feet on the ground. If something's really important to you from the experience, like 
I should divorce my wife and leave my kids or whatever. Write it down and then take time in meditation and prayer and use your inner guidance and your heartfelt connection. And if you're really got this intuition or, or this insight from the medicines or from the medicine experience, I would say, talk to somebody that you really trust, you know, someone that's rational, someone that's got their feet on the ground. It could be your grandmother, could be your best friend. It could be a counselor at work that, you know, just be careful. Cause I've seen a lot of people make some wildly drastic decisions that can be very, very hurtful to people that they love and do things that they later represented, such as completely shutting down functional, profitable businesses because they think God told them that they should give everything to Jesus or whoever their favorite um, place to donate is. So just be conscious that it takes time and you have to be a, a mature adult in how you handle this and the bigger the the insight or uh, changes, the more careful you need to be about how quickly you make it so you don't actually disrupt your own life and the lives of other people. Because if they find out that's connected to this medicine process, it'll unleash a, 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 a whole stink bomb into your life. And it just goes to further damage the belief and reputation of real medicine. So um, anything you want to add to that? Just said how important that is. It's super important. And to understand that the, the really grandiose visions that people have are often ones that other people have had as well. And to warn against the idea that you're the first person to ever have that experience on a plant medicine. It comes through often that people think that they're the only one to have ever experienced something. And the reality is that these are common experiences that we've all shared and watch out for the, the things that just seem too big, too grandiose. Uh, it doesn't mean that they won't come true, but you want to use a real razor sharp form of logic and reason there. Give it time to see if it would actually manifest or not. And uh, as you say, you know, don't make the decisions that you'll regret later simply because you had some kind of twist in your psyche or a thought that was coming up during that time in the ceremony. And also remember that these are thoughts and we need to treat them as thoughts. So thoughts are a great way to start a process of change. They aren't the change themselves. So if you, if you would, if you do need to come to that place to understand, like you need a divorce, that's an unbelievably huge decision. And to, uh, Take it incredibly seriously and understand that even if it came so clear in a ceremony, it's still going to require an unbelievable amount of work and change to be able to make that manifest. So uh, follow your heart, follow logic and reason, and ultimately give yourself the time that you need to be able to make logical and rational decisions after the ceremony's experience. So are you trying to tell me that I'm not God after all? Well, if you are, we all are, and I'm happy to share that state. <laughs> and then I would like us to get our godliness on and do even better with this planet. I feel yes. like if that's the case, we're like the part of God that isn't crushing it right now for the yeah. whole planet. So. Yeah. I just I just said that because I've had so many people in the middle of a ceremony look at me and go, Paul, I'm God. Do, do you realize <laughs> I'm God? 
And I go, I've always known you were God, but so is everybody else here. Don't forget that. <laughs> exactly. I like the we idea. I've been really working with the idea of just put it in the we. Yeah. Every time you have a big realization that's universal and you go, I, just make it we. Yes. So Paul, we God. Yeah. A nice way, nice way to, to reframe that. Well, as the old saying goes, there is no I and we. So that that's a safe container for those realizations. <laughs> oh, that's one of the, my favorite ones because that's probably the one that happens the most. It's like all of a sudden in the middle of a ceremony, somebody sits up ramrod straight goes, I get it. I'm God. I'm God. I'm like, hallelujah. <laughs> Took you a while to figure it out. Now what are you going to do about it? <laughs> that's a great follow-up. Like what comes next? Yeah. <laughs> what, what are you going to do about it? Oh, shit. There's a lot of work for you, God. <laughs> so we're right at the end now, Hamilton. Uh, regarding the future and the further healing with patent medicines, we've touched on this. Two questions. How long should an individual wait to do another ceremony? How will I know it's time? And what's the best type of medicine that, that I should use now? Um, I'll just throw my two cents in. You shouldn't do another ceremony until you are confident that you have integrated and utilized everything you learned to better yourself in the last ceremony. So if it was loving your mother that drives you crazy more until you're loving her more, don't go because you're just going to get a laundry list of all the things that you realize that you can do better and love better and improve yourself and contribute to the world. And what I've seen happen is by about six or eight journeys, people start having a problem with their self-esteem because they realize they're copping out on everything that spirit has taught them and showed them. So now they start to feel insecure about themselves and they go into a state of denial, guilt, shame, low self-esteem. And that's not what you're supposed to do with medicines. And that usually means that you're doing medicines for the wrong reasons probably with the wrong people with the wrong motives. So how do you know when it's time to do another ceremony? You're well grounded. You've learned the lessons and you've implemented them into your life. And you say, okay, now that I know how to juggle, I can go back and add one more ball because I can juggle two now. But if you still can't juggle two, going to another ceremony and getting your third ball. And then two weeks later, you got four balls. And the next thing you know, all you're doing is bashing windows and hitting people on the head with the balls that you can't juggle while you're probably convincing yourself you're becoming enlightened in the process. <laughs> Anything you want to add to that? <laughs> I think that's actually really well said. <laughs> Thank you. Practice teaches you with all these things. The question is, what's the best type of medicine that I might need now? You, you won't know that till you're there. Um, and you're going to have to talk to someone with a lot of skill. Because if they don't have skill, all they're going to do is say, oh, man, I think what you ought to do is uh, a bunch of MDMA and get your heart blown open. You're not going to get a skilled answer. And so you can just end up in some kind of a shit show of a situation and not get what you need. You know, a surgeon knows exactly what every tool on his work table does and what ones you should and should not use. And 
someone who's skilled with plant medicines, a shaman or otherwise, or a skilled practitioner knows exactly what is likely to be the right medicine for the kind of mental, emotional state you're in, the stage of life you're in, what you're dealing with, unresolved traumas, challenges, what dose is likely to be good for you. So if you try to make that decision yourself, you're probably just guessing. And that's probably not a real good idea. Yeah, each medicine does something different. And so you just have to be very clear about your uh, intentions going in and what you're trying to achieve next. And like we said earlier, more is not more and stronger isn't always better. And so we're looking always for the right next medicine to be able to support your growth and development. And if you want to explore them, there isn't anything wrong with that. But you want to go in like a, a progressive order. So people usually start out with either mushrooms or San Pedro. And then, you know, they move to other kinds of medicines that might be a little bit more potent in terms of the intensity of the experience. And, um, you know, ayahuasca and ibogaine are usually considered the most intense that or most potent in terms of the experience. That doesn't mean that, um, that you shouldn't start with something like ayahuasca, but if you do, you need to do it with a trained professional who really knows what they're doing. Well, yeah, and I would add DMT into that one because, you know, smoking DMT can give you the lift of uh, many cups of ayahuasca within the span of time it takes you to take one breath. So um, I've known three people to die using DMT because of the lack of skill and lack of dosing experience. So be conscious that you can meet God, but you may not come home from the visit. Hamilton, I don't think we could have done a better job in a few hours of putting together a, a, a user's guide for healthy, safe plant medicines. You know, we put a lot in here. It's a long podcast, but I don't think personally there's anything we could have left out and not walked away feeling like, wow, we, we you know, we left a hole in our sacred container here. So I hope you guys listening appreciate that Hamilton and I put a lot of time and energy and effort to preparing this for you because we care about you and we care about the planet and we care about medicines and we want to keep them sacred. And we know that the world needs plant medicines for healing and awakening right now, but we also know that one man's medicine is another man's poison and you want to make sure you keep it medicinal because as Hamilton and I have both said, these things are double-edged swords. They can be surgical scalpels that help you heal, or they can be the knife that kills you if you're not careful. And our dream for all of you, I, I speak for Hamilton now, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think our dream for all of you is that you're adult about this. You're respectful about it. You don't do things with medicines that damage the sacredness of the medicines or you're damaging the healing potential for the whole world that you respect that these things aren't candy and they're not pills and drugs you buy at a drugstore. They need to be grown. They need to be managed and nurtured and cared for. And when you find someone that you can get real medicines from, you should pay them well because it takes a lot of time and energy to prepare medicines properly. So if you're looking for cheap medicines, you're already off on the wrong foot. 
It's an investment in you and it's an investment in life. And because of all the things that Hamilton and I and Kyle Kingsbury and many others have run into, I think Hamilton and I both really felt from our meeting together, the best thing we could do is to give you a good user's guide to help you be aware of the risks of this and be aware of the benefits and the healing powers and all the things that we've discussed. So Hamilton, I'm super, super grateful to have been able to do this with you. And I thank Kyle Kingsbury greatly and the others that recommended you because it's just such a joy to meet someone that's so grounded and so experienced and, and really full of honest wisdom and um, can really help me help a lot of people. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, Paul. It's a tremendous pleasure. And I agree with everything that you said. This is about the sacredness of the medicines and the respect for them on a global level. And to understand that it's the safe, professional, respectful use of them that allows them to be a medicine for everybody. And it's time for our culture to receive them in a way for a great awakening. And it, they're incredible tools for that. But they're so powerful that we have to be very humble and uh very, very careful in the way that we use them. And so I appreciate sharing that message. And I love the idea of sharing this knowledge and wisdom with everybody so that we can have even uh, more powerful healing come from these medicines and even a more beautiful transformation for everybody involved. Thank you. And also, I would highly recommend any of you listening to this because there's going to be many of you that all of a sudden say, oh, I know someone that needs to listen to this because it's obvious from what we shared that they're making mistakes and being dangerous to themselves or other people. So please, anybody that you think needs this level of awakening and awareness um, and some guidelines, pass this thing around. It doesn't cost you a dime to do it. We're not asking for anything. We just want everybody to be safe because right now, if you haven't noticed, we need some rapid evolution on the planet. So as Terrence McKenna says, you can either sweep the monastery floor for seven years or do one hit of DMT. It's up to you. But I would rather you sweep the monastery floor for seven years than do the DMT if you're not guided by a skilled guide and it's not done intelligently and in sacred space with sacred intention. The point is, your evolution can be rapidly accelerated with the intelligent use of plant medicines. And anybody that doesn't agree with that probably has never used them. That would be, I've noticed over the many years I've been working with plant medicines, that almost everyone that has harsh criticisms has zero experience using them, or they did very stupid things themselves and automatically assume everybody else is going to be as stupid as they were. So there is legitimate criticism because people do the kinds of things we've warned about here. But our goal is to give you the guidelines to find somebody that you can trust, to know what you're looking for, to know how to set it up, to know to be careful who you buy from, where you get them from, and all the things that we've discussed are critically important. And as I shared, I've already known six people to die doing plant medicines, and I shared one of those very sad true personal stories with you. But I've known six people in my own circle of friends to kill themselves by doing stupid things with plant medicines. And one of the stupidest things you can do, aside from using LSD and water, is doing DMT in a jacuzzi or a swimming pool. 
two of the people I know drowned doing DMT in a jacuzzi. Completely different, didn't know each other, but did the same trick. Took a full hit of DMT, went unconscious, went under the water and drowned, and that was the end of them. And all they found is a dead body and a pipe in the jacuzzi. Um, so there, there's some real things. And I also have a lot of empathy for parents because a lot of parents with kids that get to their teenage years, early 20s, are aware that their kids are out chasing this kind of crazy stuff down. And so a lot of what we're sharing today is very important for young people, young men whose testosterone's turning on, they're getting a bit wild and crazy. These are these are not things you play with. These are things you'd be very, very careful with. And you know, there's this thing called karma. If you abuse medicines, you always get yourself back. There is no escaping the law of karma. Believe it or not, if you don't believe in the law of karma, I can show you how to figure it out. Go find a steel shipping container somewhere. And if you're stupid enough to do the test, fire a 22 caliber bullet inside it with the doors closed. And if you can avoid the ricochets of that bullet and still live, you're lucky. Karma means action-reaction. You swing an axe and miss and hit your foot, it cuts your foot open. Action-reaction. You throw a tennis ball at a wall real hard and it comes back and hits you in the face. Action-reaction. You do stupid things with drugs. Action-reaction. So the law of karma is really as real as life can possibly get. And I think we all need to remember we owe it to each other to exemplify love, responsibility, adulthood, and acting in ways that if emulated would make the world a better place for all living beings now and in the future. So uh, Hamilton, could you please share where people can reach you and anything else that you'd like to share before we say goodbye? Yeah, everyone can reach me through our website at bluemorphotours.com. And you can find me on social media at Hamilton Souther official for Facebook and Instagram. And please get in touch with us. If you're interested in information, write us at info at bluemorphotours.com. And we're happy to keep sharing and invite all of you to come on our retreats and come and meet us. And look forward to sharing plant medicine ceremonies with you. And I hope you got a tremendous amount of information and uh, direction and guidance from this podcast. And Paul, thank you so much for having me on it. It's just a tremendous pleasure. Yes, I feel like I have a new friend for life, Hamilton. I, I really would like to stay in touch with you. I'll probably be sending lots of people. I'm sure the podcast is going to keep you very busy. But I'm just grateful that I now have a a shaman I can refer to and send people to and help people and a place that they can go where they have a safe container because I'd rather people fly all the way across the world than go to their local junkyard to have their ceremony and end up in big trouble because the, you know, like I told you, one of the guys that got hurt by that LSD he had to shut his whole business down. It cost his parents about 30, 35,000 in medical bills. And he was probably making a hundred plus thousand a year when he had to shut that thing down and it disabled him for well over a year. So if he would have seen you instead of the person that did that to him, 
he would probably be making a quarter of a million a year and his parents would be really happy and he'd have evolved himself spiritually. And unfortunately, he went against everything that I had told him because he happened to be part of a group that I had given this very kind of a talk to multiple times and chose to go against everything that I had taught him. And so um, there's the law of karma at work. And it doesn't care if you're 14 years old or 44 or 94. It is a law. So I'm very blessed to have met you, Hamilton. And I, it's my intention to stay connected at the heart with you for the rest of my life. So thank you. Oh, amazing. Same for me, Paul. I feel exactly the same way. And I really look forward to when we'll get to spend time together in person. And I look forward to the continued friendship and communication that we'll get to have. Aho, great spirit. It is done. It is done. It is done. Thank you to my sponsors for all your great products, awesome quality, sustainable practices. And thank you all for buying anything from the sponsors that supports the podcast so I can keep bringing you amazing people like Hamilton and many others so that we can all live and love better each day. I'll see you all next time with something amazing. Lots of love. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Hamilton Souther. You can follow Hamilton on Twitter at Hamilton Souther or on Facebook at Hamilton Souther Official. Visit the Blue Morpho websites at bluemorphotours.com for in-person plant medicine retreats and bluemorphoretreats.world for online retreats. You can also find them on Instagram and Facebook at bluemorphoretreats. Check out Paul on Instagram and TikTok at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with paulcheck. You can also watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find all the links to the resources and offers mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts.